Hello, family and friends. Welcome to another Talks with Lim Lee. This is available to the billions of people around the world on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Podchaser, Supercast, <laughs> and so many more. No radio? Not radio yet. Oh, okay. iHeartRadio. <laughs> oh, iHeartRadio. We're on that? Um, I'm your host, Lim. I bring the perspective of a software engineer. I've been doing it for about two decades. And today my host is? Host. Co-host. Co-host. Bro-host. My name is Emmett Morgan. I'm a Las Vegas realtor. Um, yeah, I just hang out on the show a lot. It's, it's a nice place. <laughs> today, uh, we actually have two stunning and incredible professional women here who are just treasures of Las Vegas. They are doing good things in our community. Uh, please welcome... Maria Jose and Norma, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Yes, well, thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Maria Jose Gatti. I am the Executive Director for Corporate Philanthropy and Community Engagement for MGM Resorts. And I've been with MGM for the last 14 years in different positions. So, and like I told the group, I love what I do. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. I'm super excited. I am Norma Intriego. I'm the Executive Director for Dress for Success Southern Nevada. We are a global nonprofit um, in 25 countries. I'm one of 100 affiliates, we're, but we're the only 501c3 um, here in uh, Southern Nevada doing the work that we do um, to empower women um, to become independently, economically independent by providing them professional attire, network of support, and all the development tools that they need to succeed in life and in work. Awesome. So we spend three... No, I was just saying that's fantastic, yeah. yeah. So we spend three hours talking about how people could get involved. We, could, we talk about the diversity problems. We talk about how that affects women and why women are affected uh, during COVID. Um, any other key issues that we talked about? Uh, how uh, old white men are oppressing everybody. Yeah, <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> I just want to say thank you. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, we're happy to be here. Okay, so, what's on your guys? What's on your guys' minds? Philanthropy, uh, nonprofit, dress for success for women. Um, what's MGM. Some of She's on the funder side. So you have um, ex you have two people that work in the same as in the same space, in two different worlds, right? Um, Norma, who will. You could do a great job in talking about what she does as, as the executive director for Dress for Success is who we usually sometimes turn around into fund, right? I'm the funder. I'm the person that um, pitches programming to a corporation, MGM Resorts, um, a, for community engagement. So mm. you have the two sides of a coin here. Um, both of us do similar things. We both do similar stuff, but different. Um, both of us have the same focus in mind, which is impact our communities uh, in a positive way. How does uh, MGM come into play on that? Like, so you're a part of the company to, they have you as a part of a division to help nonprofits? Yeah, so my department, my job, I'm the executive director of community engagement and philanthropy for MGM Resorts International. Mm. I am one of three different areas within, within corporate social responsibility. 
There's diversity, equity, and inclusion, sustainability, and community engagement, philanthropy. So under um, my purview, you, you have corporate giving, foundation giving, and volunteering. Anything that has to do with employee, engage, employee engagement and engaging in communities. And that's just across the enterprise. My main focus is on Southern Nevada. Is, is, uh, is MGM the biggest employer in Las Vegas? Yeah, we are the largest employer in the state of in Nevada. state of Nevada, okay. And so MGM has a big ability to influence our state. Uh, and in, in this case, you're funding programs to help the state, right? To help the people. To help is people that, in Southern Nevada, mainly in Southern Nevada. So yeah. um, our focus is always to support the communities where we work and live in, right? We don't have anybody in Northern Nevada, so <laughs> yeah. uh, resources are spent in the South. Uh, but the same thing is um, across the country. We have we are in Detroit and Mississippi, both North and South, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, uh, Maryland. And so it's the same protocol, the same idea. It's we invest in the communities where we are actually working. Okay, so you work at MGM and then Norma is at Dress for Success. Is that um, correct? I'm at Dress for Success Southern Nevada. Dress yeah. for Success is a global nonprofit. We're, I'm one of a hundred affiliates. Now we're our own separate wow. 501c3. We're across 25 countries uh, in the US. I think it's in over about um, 41 states. So, um, and, and the mission of Dress for Success, and this is, is this all, all Dress for Success, our global mandate is that we're an organization that truly focuses on empowering women. And, um, you know, the best way that we can empower women is to make sure that that woman is economically independent. That, that is our goal. And, and the way we sustain that goal and the way we approach that goal is by one, right, that point of entry is to provide a woman professional attire. So if a woman is unemployed, underemployed, socioeconomically disadvantaged, right, oftentimes, you know, that woman may not have the wardrobe to pursue, right, a, a career or to be interviewed for a job um, that she needs, you know, and oftentimes, sometimes it's a survival job, right, to put food on the table, um, to keep, you know, her kids' bellies full. So we, the, the suiting program that we have is really the heart of the organization, but that's just our point of entry, right? We want a woman to be seen so that then she can be heard and she has a seat at the table. So it begins with the suiting program and then we provide her with a network of support. So a lot of data shows that for um, people of color, for women, right, any, any group that has to deal with inequity, right? How we address that inequity is to give them that access. Uh, the access that wealth, that networks give you, right? When you go to an Ivy League school, um, sure, it's a great education, but what you're really paying is for an access to a network, right? Um, we see the data, those that graduate from uh, um, the top schools, how they start off at a, at a very high salary, right? So it's access to those networks where they can get paid internships. So that's what we try to provide um, for our women. And we do that in partnership with corporations like the MGM because we rely on their, they're sort of like our brain trust, right? That's our network is to connect our women with professional women like Maria Jose um, or HR executives in the MGM that can be career coaches, that can be mentors for our women, right? Because they need that modeling if they haven't seen a career pathway. Um, but we also provide them with development tools. Um, we have a big partnership that's new with Dress for Success on a global basis, and that's with Google. So we're harnessing the power of Google, right? Leveraging off their intellectual property so that we have the models and how to create a curriculum for the women, right? I can address women that need digital upskilling, 
and we can have those Google modules that are already built in videos and all I have to do is get volunteers uh, to provide that training for women. So it is, uh, as I said, to make sure that women are economically independent and we do that with the professional tire, the network of support and the development tools. So is there a, um, have you, Maria, have you had a situation where you actually got um, a, a woman from the woman of uh, stress versus success? Sorry, uh, so like, have you helped someone that ended up working at AMGM? So I, it seems like it could be a win-win, MGM's yeah. helping yeah. your foundation. And that's, that's a great question because those are the conversations that we're having now. So now, especially with the pandemic, right, the way women have been disproportionately impacted with the pandemic, what we're trying to create is stronger partnerships that I'm looking here locally so that we can have, um, when there is, for example, an MGM uh, opening, job openings, virtual affairs, we usually post the jobs and share them with our women. We have... Um, a Facebook group just for our clients. Um, but we are trying to create stronger partnerships. So you've actually started a conversation I want to have with Maria Jose <laughs> oh. and other corporate partners so that um, when we're suiting a woman, right, the idea would be to match them right there and there with a career coach, but then also to have, let's say, a spokesperson from the MGM there, tell them what they're looking for as an employer. And I mean, wouldn't it be great if we can just get them signed up right right on the spot to apply? So oh, yeah. that's the long-term goal, especially now. Um, there is a need on both sides, right? I need to get women back into the labor market and Maria Jose needs to fill positions. The MGM needs to fill positions and we have to meet somewhere there because we know that a lot of also the safety nets have fallen. And so now more than ever, I think the relationship between the public and private sector is critical. Yeah, and it's important to say that I may be funding programs like Norma's and others mm -hmm. in the community, but when it comes down to employment, it goes into a completely different department, right? It goes into um, the human resources side of the recruitment um, of MGM. And I, I think there is an opportunity just in general to um, build better partnerships between the funder, whether it's MGM, SANS, when any of them, right? And the nonprofits and being able to translate what the money is doing to the impact it is having in people's lives. So um, in a program like Normash, they actually were awarded a grant this year through the foundation. And I should clarify, the foundation is um, mainly employee dollars. Employees contribute into the MGM Resource Foundation. Oh, cool. We open up for grants. And um, once a year, we open an RFP. And uh, that's how the dollars get funded. And so we will turn around and look at groups like Norma and say, OK, well, now it's time for you to track. So where did this money go? right? There's a return on investment and it's more on a uh, return on impact, right? The impact that she will have. We right. have the funds, but we don't have the programs, right? That's her job. That's her organization's job. It's no different than a food bank, right? We may be able to write a grant to Three Square, but it's Three Square's job to fund, to build the food bank and provide the food around and, you know, in the community. When MGM is looking for foundations so you're dealing with a lot of foundations uh other than dress for success you're i mean you're doing all organizations of yeah yeah uh, non-profits right so there um there's two types of um in my world in normal's world a non-profit <laughs> or it's not necessarily sometimes a foundation mm -hmm. um there are foundations and the guidelines are similar but they're different in the sense that a, a non-profit is actually a business it's mm -hmm. a business and the only difference between a, I don't know, a mechanic, I'm gonna say, and a nonprofit is the tax status, that's it. 
Okay. One is tax exempt, which is a nonprofit where the mechanic that's opening up his shop or her shop, it's a for-profit. You must pay taxes on everything you buy and you have to charge taxes, right? When you give the money to a nonprofit, it's tax exempt. She needs to show it uh, at the end of the year, submit a 990 like a uh, submitted, you know, a 990 like everybody else does. So everyone yeah. submits tax returns. She needs to show what she raised and where the money was in invested. Where you in a per in a for-profit business will may have partners that you have to share the revenue with. Her revenue shared back into the organization. So it's there, that's the big difference. Can, we, can you start up a nonprofit car mechanic? Because I would really like that. <laughs> you could <laughs> you could start up a a car mechanic internship where you can actually help kids that's understand right. what it takes yeah. to to fix a car. Um, especially nowadays that everything is uh, engineered Electronic with electronics. Or, yeah. Yes. So you can definitely do that. However, there are still <laughs> projects and partnerships here in the community that already have that. So you may just be able to volunteer. That's usually what I tell people when they tell me that they want to start a nonprofit. I'm like, ah, okay, it's a lot of work yeah. and you have to set it up as a business. And you don't make any money. Um, that's, that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Okay. Because there's this other perception that uh, people that work in nonprofits, um, there's a mindset of poverty. Yeah, I think, that, that they people have they, misunderstand they, about yeah, nonprofits. They have to be poor, um, yeah. just with a big heart to work in a nonprofit. Right. Uh, okay. Well, that's not true because just like Norma, and once upon a time I worked for a nonprofit as well. Yeah, I still need to put food on the table. I need to pay my mortgage. I need to send my kid to school. I need to do all the things that a person in the for-profit world will have to do, right? So yeah, I have to, correct. Yeah. So I, and I need to have a sustainable wage. Norma cannot work towards making women independent, financially independent, if she can't get paid herself, right? Right. So she can't even afford nice clothes. Or beyond that, just the <laughs> ability to be self-sufficient, yeah, right? Yeah, to be yeah. a, to be a person that is above the poverty level, because yeah. all the work any organization does around food, education, um, and workforce, it's trying to bring. Uh, built wealth um, for everyone, not just for a few. Yeah. And that, I think that's, what yeah, did you that's say? Yeah, I think, I think there's so many um, nonprofits really at the end of the day, I think we all have the same end goal, right? We want to put, that's the difference. I think we quickly want to put ourselves out, out of business, right? We're tackling some of the world's most difficult problems, but there should be an end goal. You want to fulfill that mission. That's why it's the vision in a nonprofit is probably more critical than in a for-profit, right? And then there are a lot of cross-cutting sectors. So let's say I'm looking at one segment of the population. I'm looking specifically uh, at the way, um, uh, you know, this inequity, particularly for women, right? But I'm tackling poverty. I'm tackling poverty. So like I said, there may be more of a laser focus. And then there are other cross-cutting issues, like Maria Jose says. There could be other nonprofits and organizations that are also um, looking specifically one issue. But what we want, right, it's that. It's, it's I do believe, it's generational um, wealth building. We want to break cycles of poverty. We want to break uh, generational poverty. And we do that in different ways. Um, and our focus may be different. But I think for many, many charities, that is the end goal, because it's, it's poverty has um, 
the way folks are affected by poverty, right? It's, it's cross-cutting issues, right? It, it impacts your access to healthcare. It impacts your access to, to the labor market, to workforce, right? Um, it impacts your access to food, which you talked about, why, why food banks are important. So all, all these charities have a place. Now, we're, I, I like the fact that you asked the question of how do you start a nonprofit, and everybody wants to, but one of the things that <laughs> we don't do that we should take it serious as a business because there are too many people with, I say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, with lots of good hearts. And anyone that wants to start a nonprofit, the first thing I say is why. And while you may have a lovely cause, have you done your analysis, your demographic? There's probably already another nonprofit tackling that issue. Are they being effective, impactful, right? In Nevada, we're specifically challenged with that. I think it speaks of the goodwill of the community. Too many nonprofits, small nonprofits with very little impact. We've lots of nonprofits with budgets under 250,000. So it's a very fragmented nonprofit market. Um, and while, you know, yes, there's also, you can go on the flip side and make a case or an argument for a nonprofit that's bureaucratic, that's bloated, that's not effective, right? Um, that could certainly be the case. But I think for everyone, whether you want to start a nonprofit, whether you're a funder, or whether um, you're you are a donor, you really need to look at impact. You need to look at the problem that nonprofit is seeking to solve, right? And how effective they're being and not judging them with that poverty mindset, right? By their overhead. That's not an effective way to judge a nonprofit. You're going to judge it by its programs and services. And one thing that I love that Marie Jose said, that return on community, right? What your ROI is, that return on investment for us in the public sector, in the public good, it's return on community. How are we impacting our communities? Can, can you give us a great uh, success story? Uh, you, don't, yeah. you don't have to give names. No, no, I have a great success story. <laughs> and recently she was featured. I don't know if you guys saw her in the RJ. She was public. So we um, helped a uh, woman who was a victim of domestic violence. Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. She's, you know, so many of the women that we help really are my inspiration. I feel like they help me more. They motivate me. Um, a victim of domestic violence. And then we don't realize that domestic violence often ends up being tied to homelessness. So having to flee that domestic situation, you abandon everything. Um, so she found herself homeless in a shelter. Yet in dire straits, um, I think she just, it, you know, her heart, I think social work was always built in this uh, uh, in this person, in this amazing woman. And um, she ended up being like one of the lead people at the uh, shelter that other women looked to. She came to us um, as she was looking for employment and we uh, suited her for an interview. She ended up getting the job. Uh, so she's working. Um, and then from that job, the step up approach um, went into social work. She's now a social worker for Clark County, uh, working in one of the schools in Ronzani. And not only that, she's getting her master's degree and she's thinking of starting her own nonprofit. But now she's tackled an issue that's very specific. I know you guys are going to laugh because <laughs> I did tell her, um, you know, what she's doing is important. One, even before the nonprofit, she actually has a small circle where she helps women because she saw the challenges that when she went through that need more financial education. Women really lack in financial education. So she She's helping them clean their credits, um, get just sound finance to get themselves on the feet because she was also the beneficiary of another program. And this is where nonprofits really, really win when they collaborate. Um, and I think that's also a unique model that we have that I that's one of the reasons, too, why I joined Dress for Success. We work with over 150 
partners. We're better when we partner together. Um, I really do believe that. And so she also benefited from this financial program and now is paying it forward by helping other women um, get themselves straight financially and providing that financial education. Now, she still hasn't said 100% yes, but she's thinking of starting the nonprofit, but she's looking at a sector that she sees a tremendous need, working as a social worker in the schools, the mid, the, the, the middle kid, the, the school in middle kid age, right? I was, I was very involved with the Nevada State um, PTA. Um, and I worked as their VP of resource development and also in working with communities and schools of Nevada, another great nonprofit. We saw that 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 kid in middle school, um, the danger of falling off um, was great, but then also there are not enough programs. Many of us just didn't know, even mm. we couldn't seem to make an impact. Cause they're at a precautious age, right? We have a lot of programs that deal with early childhood education um, to provide that support, right? And lots of data and studies. And then we have a lot of programs at the very high risk, right? With teenagers, with youth, we do it a lot. We had a special program in communities and schools when I worked there, an amazing program called Academy, right? Where we try to provide lots of support for junior and senior kids that were at risk of dropping out, right? So we have those interventions, but that, that middle age school kid, right? That middle school level, it's kind of hard because they're still kids, but they're not yet youth. And, and there's this fine balance and it can be really hard to reach that kid. So she's primarily looking at that sector and saying, how can I be more effective, not only as a social worker or are there other organizations that can address, you know, the kids at this age so that we don't lose them. Um, and I, and I, I think that's sound, but you know, there's the ripple effect. You invest in a woman, this woman has gone back and paid it forward in so many ways and it's continuing to grow. We've uh, recently also suited her for um, a leadership uh, opportunity that she has in August. And so we dressed her with formal attire and she's gonna be doing that. And um, you know, it disguised the limit for her. So we, we want more leadership experience, right? So it's just more than taking a woman out of poverty, right? Right? It's, it's, it's seeing that there is a true pathway and growth for this woman so that not only is she successful in work, but in life. And that's critical because the, the payback, the ROI, if, if you're really going to look at a population where there's strong ROIs when you invest in women, just it's, it's there. You see that domestically and internationally. When you invest in women, the dividend is, is just like fourfold. I would say that I feel that in, in all aspects of government and society, if if we just invest in people, I think that's, it seems like right. I have a, maybe I'm i I'm trying to think what I, I'm maybe too far left in some of my thoughts, too liberal. Like if we invest in the people that helps the economy, that gets people working, that, that makes smarter workers, smarter societies, that helps the whole country. And I feel like sometimes in America, we're really missing that. Um, that, that that's just, I mean, a random, I think it's true. You have to invest in people. I mean, there is something to be said about people that can relate to others. So in this case, this woman can actually talk to other women that have been in the same yes. place she has. And so it's no longer Norma or myself showing up trying to talk about how she can do things, right? There's someone else that can share a story. And so there's that ability. But people also have to help themselves. Okay, that's a big key. It's good to have social services and social um, programs that help, but you need to help yourself. In this case, she pulled herself out of poverty. All people did was give her a, gave her a path. Funding came, people like Norma led the way to make sure she had access, but she got herself out of poverty, and that's the key. O social programs only work if people want to be part of it. 
right? They want to progress. They want to see change. They, if you don't want to see change, no matter what you give them, you're not going to move them, right? Yeah, can't change somebody if they don't want to change. Correct. Right? Yeah. And so there's a there's the perfect balance that programs in our communities help people that want to be helped. Um, there. Programs are always doing outreach to everyone. So there's not a, I'm gonna help you and not you. Everyone has access. Sometimes it's how they take that access and run with it. It's the big difference, right? You take um, a kid, there's a program um, that I actually love. Um, there's the Nevada Child Foundation, um, Blind Children's Foundation, I'm sorry. And um, they're the first school in the state of Nevada for blind children. Um, we funded the okay. program through the foundation, through the employee foundation a few years back. That's how they opened up, right? Yeah. And um, in one of the programs, they used to have this little boy who uh, was just going to school normally. And when uh, the executive director actually told me the story and I was in tears, um, asked, when they asked the kid what, they want, what he wanted to do when he was older, he says, well, there's not much for me to do. I'm blind, so I'm going to drive the bus or ride the bus back and forth, you know, mm. until that's it. They started the program and they started giving this kid the resources, right? The ability to read, the ability to understand, the ability to do things, to build things. Yeah. He liked to build things. He's going, he's now planning to go to college. I mean, the age when he started and he gave um, that, made that comment was nine. At age 13, his world had completely changed yeah. because there was a program out there that met his needs that allowed him to see the potential in him when before he his didn't world see was small. Yeah, his world was so small. see a future. Correct. And like that, you, you have all this network of people and groups that have the right intentions. And if you match them up with the right people, the success is always going to be there. Now, however, I don't know, Norma's job is to get herself out of a job, right? And I guess that would mean that I will get myself out of a job because there's no, no one to fund. Um, but Good the, luck, you two. Yeah, yeah. But that's the, the ideal, right? I mean, we're nowhere near there. Yeah. Nowhere near you're, there. You're I want to see all women out of poverty. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the ideal. That's the dream, right? A world in a vision where women do not live in poverty, can live with dignity, can contribute to their families and the community. That's the world I want to live in. But, you know... It, it takes a heck of a lot of work, you know, but... Um, An aggravation sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. You you sit there and you look over and not every program can be funded. As, yeah. a, as a funder, sometimes you look at applications that come in and you can't make sense of what they ask you for, right? So what did you apply for? I mean, I literally read a grant this year <laughs> that there was a whole sentence missing. So they <laughs> wrote about the program Ask me for $100,000 nonetheless. Yeah. And um, left probably the most important sentence completely out of the application. Wait, what's the most important sentence? Is it what we do or? Yes, and the impact. Okay, gotcha. So if you just tell me, I am going to build a house, it's going to be a house for, give me $100,000. <laughs> Could be if it's a house for a dog, I definitely don't think it's going to uh, need $100,000. If it's a house yeah. for, a family, then it might need $100,000. So there's the still this growth that needs to happen in the nonprofit world, right? Where they have to understand that they're, they're because there's so many nonprofits here in Southern right. Nevada, right. they're all competing for the same money. Well, you if don't you, care about homeless dogs? I do, I have two. <laughs> <laughs> I have two not homeless dogs, by the way. My dogs are definitely not homeless. They're spoiled brats. I also have a cat, so I have great love for animals at this point. Um, okay. But, you know, you just, you, you have to be able to 
you let me just go back. You said something about the. I tried to explain how nonprofits were businesses, right? Yes. You start with the heart, but you develop the business. Yes. Norma's business acumen means that she's going to write a grant or give me a proposal that I can pitch to my uh, leadership yeah. as a good investment. There has to uh, be a case for support. You correct. have to justify those dollars. You have to yeah. show that impact. And but so when this? there's that missing sentence of what you <laughs> intend to do, you know, that, that that's that's tough to fund, you know. And I think a lot of people don't get it when they they will say, oh, you know, you have a really hard job. It must be so depressing doing the work that you do. Um, I find it very uplifting. I think sometimes on the other hand, I think people glamorize Maria Jose's job or the job of funders. And I think it's very, very difficult to be at that table because you want to be able to fund as many um, organizations as you can. You want to make as much impact as possible. So it is it is super difficult to say no, but it also must be very frustrating when you see an organization that has potential, but they, um, you know, they, they don't have the business. They can't make a case for support. Um, you can't justify those dollars. No, thought, and that's, thought, that's a really uh, hard Jose's work. Jose's job was to write those giant checks. <laughs> it <laughs> is? The, the big cardboard uh, yeah, the, the cardboard <laughs> checks. Yeah, yeah, you take those to, to the, the ATM. They work really well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people think that my job it consists of giving out those big checks, With making giant, it giant rain, hand, yeah. right? just making it <laughs> rain, and um, just showing up to events and yeah. you know shaking hands. And that's not true. I mean, Norma and is correct. Babies and <laughs> just throwing darts. That's how she selects her grants. She just puts the names on the dartboard. It's not true, but it sounds like some days it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, you know, there's a lot of strategy behind it, right? You take up a, a corporation like MGM. I have an amazing chairman. Yeah. He is a guy that um, has lived here in Vegas for a very long time. He's very involved in the community and he's he wants to know what's going on, right? Yeah. So you have the responsibility, because I work for him, to ensure that every dollar that the company gives me, because I don't generate any revenue. My team does not generate revenue. We mm. get to spend the money, right? But we yeah. get to spend the money and invest it in community. So my job is really hard because I have to pitch programs that have a long, a long-standing impact. You have to show that you're not wasting the money. Correct. Right. Yeah. That I'm not just funding friends and family or funding someone that had a good idea. A lot of things oh, come from good ideas. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just a minute. This podcast is not getting funding from the MGM. Yeah, it's definitely not. I have a non <laughs> just, just be clear. <laughs> I have a nonprofit mechanic shop, and then you can drop off your dogs there. <laughs> <laughs> that will be very interesting to yeah. see. Yeah. Uh -huh. If I want to see you make a case for support for that. Yeah. Yes. If you're going for a job interview, we'll give you an old Saturn or an old Buick that we fixed up. <laughs> so Just make sure your cans are clean, please. <laughs> yes. So it's you know it it's a lot of it's it's a lot harder to say no. Right. Um, yeah. We have a running joke. Sometimes we say people um, people that do what I do for other cor corporations or other businesses. It seems like some days we don't like anything. Oh, People, yeah. animals, <laughs> you know, anything, houses, food. So you have a giant no stand? Yeah, it's yeah, just, uh, I have a button that no. says no. My team actually gave me one. And it's not that, it's that I can't fund everything, right? We don't have unlimited fund funding. Right. I actually had someone um, at, a, at a talk I gave a, a couple of days ago who asked me if we would provide long-term uh, funding to support all the families that are still unemployed. Mm. And there is no program in the city that can do that long-term, right? Yeah. Even welfare, you still have to qualify and somehow make it there. Right. But there is, there, you have to be very cautious and um, very responsible with funding because if I make a mistake and it, 
the community pays for it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And my responsibility is to make sure that the best programs um, make it, yeah. right? That's the job. So you're doing a good job so far. So far, they kept me there. <laughs> okay. So I'm guessing yes, somewhat. You, you, you didn't fund any uh, nonprofits or foundations that you regret? You can't say it, probably. I cannot. <laughs> that sounds like a I don't know that you regret. <laughs> no. no, I don't know that you regret anything, right? Because when you fund things, when you look at the community, um, I can tell you I've been doing this my almost my entire life. There was a small piece of my world that went to operations, but then I went yeah. back to nonprofit. All causes are good. People start uh, nonprofits with the right intentions, which is helping others, right? Um, our city has gone through some really tough times uh, from the recession um, to COVID to October 1. October 1, yeah. we remember that. Yeah. And a lot of people used to say that Vegas doesn't have a heart because all they saw was the strip, right? This, this touristy side. The party. Yeah, but when October 1 happened, so for, for our listeners, uh, October 1 is the the biggest mass shooting in U.S. history. Was at the country concert, was at the Route 95 concert. Mm -hmm. So if anybody doesn't know what that is, that was a huge event for our city in, in such a negative way because it was a terrible event that there was no good. There was just, you know, a, a crazy man, you know, went, shot a bunch of people. So it was... It was, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, and so there, there were so many people that were at the concert and got killed that uh, it impacted our entire city. There were so few people. There wasn't anybody that wasn't touched by that in some right. way, right? And people came together. Community showed up. It didn't. It didn't matter, right? People went to hospitals and just donated blood because that's what we needed. People um, made sandwiches and took them to uh, first responders. I mean, it was just this big show of community, which is the side of Vegas that people don't get to see. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have. I happen to live in the most amazing city with the heart of gold. Yeah. We have this beautiful access to the best entertainment in the world, right? Restaurants, shows, name yeah. it. We have all this. But beyond the glitz, when you turn around, you find people that care about each other. During the recession, we had some of the best years on, the, uh, on our foundation's uh, fundraising. Mm. People gave more. The people that were still working gave more so they can support the people, their coworkers that weren't working. And the same thing happened during the pandemic. We, 2020, we were shut down for most of the year. And we still were able to do grants this year and gave out $3.5 million in community support. Right. And that's in the middle of a pandemic where we didn't have fundraising activities. Are, are you saying a lot of the funds that you're administering are coming from MGM employees just giving of their own? Or is that is that not the right understanding? No. So there's two funds, right? Yeah. There's the M MGM Resorts Foundation, which has got a, a very... Um, long-standing grant process, right? And yeah. there's the corporation. The corporation does also um, donate. Last year, we gave um, we gave out about $15 million worth in community assistance across all of our regions. And I, I repeat, we were closed, right? Yeah. Um, so there wasn't that revenue. But you have the commitment of being a good community partner. Mm -hmm. um, our executives, myself, our employees, they all live and work here, they raise children here, they have grandchildren here. So it's it's this big pain it forward, it's really important. The first one you said was the, uh, um, there was the corporation, the second one, and then what was the first the foundation. one? The foundation. foundation. What's the, yeah. like, uh, found, what is the foundation? So our MGM Resorts Foundation was created in 2002, 
and in essence it's a pass-through from MGM, do MGM donations, employee donations, for instance. There's three programs. One is my direct designation. So as an employee of MGM, I can choose that um, to donate directly to nonprofits, but instead of writing a check every month to a nonprofit, um, I do it through payroll deduction and the foundation um, staff, which is the team that works with me, disperses those dollars um, out to the community. So it's really easy because at the end of the year, if I have more than one nonprofit, I just get one tax letter that you give to the accountant and you're done. Yeah. Um, and that the second program is the community grant fund, which is the grant that funded Dress for Success. So throughout the year, we do fundraising events, um, all kinds of things from a taco fundraiser where the EDR one day closes its doors and all you have is Taco Tuesday, right? <laughs> and people donate and we raise funds, goes into this big bucket across. I support tacos. I do too. And they're really good. Um, and so we, we do, little random events here and there. There's a couple of partnerships we have with some um, business partners that also help contribute to this. Yeah. Um, and then once a year, we open it up for um, community support, right? So nonprofits like Dress for Success and others um, submit applications, we review it. And when I say we is two employees from each Southern Nevada property review grants. So I don't make the decisions. I don't get to say Norma's project is great and you know Joe Blow's mechanic it's not great. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Emmett's dog mechanics is fantastic. It's not working for me. We're here. Um, so uh, that's the second. Once a year it does. Um, and then the third is the employee emergency grant, which helps employees in time of need, um, of financial need with um, yeah. short limited, short term assistance because it's a grant. So it's not considered income. So is it, to say, is it fair to say that Norma's uh, nonprofit in Southern Nevada is popular because it's, it's effectively getting voted on by employees is that um, in a way you could say that I mean you, or yeah. you could also tell um, tell Norma that she wrote a really great grant yeah. that concentrated on the impact long-term impact impact that her nonprofit's going to have in the life of women in general along with the ability to find other partners right there's nothing a nonprofit can do alone yeah. and um, mm -hmm. I'm usually a big critic of if Norma's Nonprofit is to, you know, it's employment, it's employment and training, right? She dresses them, she provides them with the resources, partners with others. If tomorrow she comes back and says, you know, I'm going to use that money you gave me to open a food pantry, I'm going to tell her, stop, that's not your focus. Okay. <laughs> it's a different story. That's, that's yeah. for that, can, can we refer you out to Three Square, please? Yeah. Can we just don't use the fund for that because there's someone else doing a much better job right. just in that area? You can't beat Three Square. No, I couldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't even attempt to. And you know, and, and talk about partnership. That's what Three Squares does too. When we worked with, when I worked with communities and schools of Nevada, we had um, um, sort of a safe room for the kids, right? Uh, those kids that are high risk, where the site coordinator was, we sort of created the safe space for them. That felt like a lounge, right? And we did have uh, a closet full of school supplies, uniforms, whatever they needed, and food. And three squares would provide those weekend bags. And so you are the best. I love what Maria Jose says. When and we you funded harness. the weekend bags, yeah. just so yeah, you know. We were the funders of yes. that. Um, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, and then when, listen, the pandemic hit, right? What happens? We realized um, how critical schools were, especially to communities of needs, right? Families that live in poverty. Um, you know, um, when that safety net fell out, well, three squares, just like with organizations like Communities in Schools um, and with the Clark County School District, right, designated 
drop-off sites where people could drive and get their food um, for their kids, right, if they weren't getting lunch. Um, because sometimes that's the only meal that the kid got. Um, and so I think that that's the best way that we can innovate. When we were in crisis, I think it took several nonprofits, and we did the same thing at Dress for Success, right? We were especially, I think it was super challenging for nonprofits. We give direct human services. So that human contact, especially for someone who comes from poverty, from trauma, right, it's very difficult to ask for help. There are a lot of misconceptions about people that live in poverty and what happens to uh, brains, because I, I say poverty is trauma. Um, and so <clears throat> not to be able to be in person, right, and to provide those human services was really, really challenging. But I think it was through partnerships, public and private, and nonprofits coming together, working together, that we were able to innovate, to find ways, even in the most difficult circumstances, when we may have had to shutter some of those physical services, to find ways to innovate so that we can get the need that our community, um, you know, Required, and so I think that that is. Um, I we I cannot emphasize more how critical partnerships are. Yeah, it's definitely human touch. Um, if you didn't have the human touch, telling a blind child at age nine that he could be anything he wanted, yeah. today he would be still thinking that the best thing he could do is ride the bus up and down the strip, right? Right. Where today he's probably out to college at this point. Right. Yeah. So yeah, people need the opportunities, right? We know that this child had the potential all along, right? But it was, his world was limited. Po that's what poverty does. Or, th or not having the resources for a disability, right? That could be addressed, right? Um, so his world was small. Um, then having that opportunity, right? Because the charity didn't do it. It's an amazing charity, um, an amazing organization that focuses on children and they've longstanding. So they've demonstrated their sustainability, right? That's when I say, look at, look at nonprofits that have impact and see how they've been driving impact ongoingly, right? This is not an organization that was an offshoot at one time, right? That continues to show um, its success, its impact on the community. But the way this life, this child's life was changed, right? It's by giving that opportunity. Children have the potential. Women have the potential, right? But we have to open the doors. We have to remove those obstacles and those barriers, the inequities, right? Um, and we have to address that. And also, too, through trauma-informed care, because oftentimes we are dealing with trauma. And, you know, we may get frustrated with some of the decisions uh, that some folks make, but we have to understand, you know, what are what's causing that 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 thinking, right? And when you're on survival mode, um, you may not make the best decisions. Yeah, but I think also on the other side, though, now you've taken revenue away from the bus company. <laughs> <laughs> we have to look, there's, there's two sides to every coin. Is that, is that not where we're going with that? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at dinner, um, the last time I had dinner with you, something that you brought up, this is a, a, bit, a tangent from what you were talking about earlier, yeah. but if, uh, if you want to jump back to the other topic, that's totally fine. Um, you brought up that with philanthropy and then nonprofit, if you're trying to help either minorities or people in help, but yet the philanthropy often is from maybe a rich white person or a rich, uh, uh, I, I think. Well, it's a, it's an issue, right? We have an issue of diversity, equity, right? And, and we talk about the, Marie Jose talked about the diversity, equity, and inclusion program. And MGM has been leading in that for quite some time. They, they you know, it's not a buzzword for them. They've lived it. I think that's one of the things that I, um, when I look at a partnership and I, I look also, think about it as a nonprofit too, because I don't approach it from a poverty mindset. I also want to partner 
um, with um, organizations that I believe in, right? And that's one of the things that I respect the most about the MGM is that they've had a long-standing history in diversity um, with with their employees and across the board. They've really tried to address that. So. The nonprofit sector, like the for-profit, we are challenged, just like you've seen the advertising sector, right? When you look at the diversity, we have a lot of diversity within our program, folks, where we don't have a lot of diversity and we see a lot of the inequities, right? Um, and re lack of representation is at the very top. And also who we view as philanthropists, right? Oftentimes, you know, um, who we see a philanthropist or who we see sitting on the board. I think that that's where we're most challenged as nonprofits, right? Um, and that I'm pleased that some funders are demanding that um, when they allocate dollars to nonprofits, that their boards be diversified, that they reflect the community that right. they're serving. We do not have enough representation with women. Um, you know, it breaks my heart. I mean, I think Nevada, though, has been stellar. We have a lot of um, EDs, which is not very common, really, to see a lot of um, um, executive directors um, at the head of their nonprofits that are Latina, that are black, and that are women. You don't see that a lot. But then also on the benefactor, right? We still have an old world um, view of uh, benefactors when we think about, you know, those leading um, wealthy philanthropists, right? They tend to be white old men. Sorry, white old men. Not that there's anything against you, but... <laughs> we'll we, take your money. Right? Send it. <laughs> but when there, what happens when you just have that and you don't have diversity, right? You are looking through limited lenses. So you have white older males addressing the needs of communities of color. Telling a, whether it's especially international, that's when it even gets more painful. I've worked in uh, international nonprofits, and that's where I really look to dismantle that, right? Um, and if so, my philanthropist, or those who I'm seeking funds from, especially when it comes to individual giving, are primarily white old men, um, you know, you create a benefactor and recipient relationship, and we need to do away with that, right? Because we want to empower, right? We want people to sustain on themselves, to become self-sufficient. You use that word that's really critical, right? If it's just charity for charity's sake, and then we're really looking at things through the wrong lenses. For example, we have to address the pandemic through gender lenses. Clearly, I'm looking at it that way when women have, are the ones that are most disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. If we don't look at it through gender lenses, we're really not going to fully address the issue. Can, can you talk about that more? I mean, does that mean uh, more women left their jobs or lost their jobs during right. the pandemic? Or wh right. what are some ways that that... So the pandemic has unveiled a lot of things. Is it that COVID-19 brought in domestic violence or is it that COVID-19 brought in gender inequity or racial inequity? No, these things were there. So when you have a crisis, right, you have a global health crisis um, that in turn, right, has economic consequences, right? Um, we see that those most vulnerable groups right, are the ones that are most impacted. One of my board members actually made a great analogy and I loved it. Um, yesterday we were at a meeting and she said, think about it like a carousel, right? Think about the folks riding mm -hmm. that carousel. And think about those that are at the edge of the carousel. That carousel starts spinning, right? If you're at the bottom of the carousel, you're the first one to get flung out. That's, that's what's happened with uh, those that are living in poverty, those that um, unfortunately are communities of color, right? Gender, when you've had these wage gaps, we've seen with women, right? We've yeah. made strides, we've made tremendous strides. We're not 100% there, right? Uh, but those strides are unraveling. Um, because women have been disproportionately impacted globally in December of 2020, all the job losses nationwide were female. In the state of Nevada, in September of 2020, 
women fared 78 points worse than men in unemployment, right? Why? So we still have women that are having to deal with the burden, right? The burden of childcare, of caregiving. And caregiving, it's not necessarily just childcare, right? Let's say you look at a, a woman that lives in poverty, multi-generational home, right? Um, they have barriers and access to healthcare. If you remember in the early on, in trying to get the vaccines, you had to make appointments. How about if you don't have access to technology? There's a language barrier, right? Um, you have that elderly grandmother that maybe lives in that household, uh, most likely, um, you know, ended up sick with COVID, right? So now you have to take care of an elderly, and then you have to homeschool your kid, how is that woman going to fare, right? How is, when we look at those inequities, right, how is she going to be able to sustain that job? And then worse yet, when you look at the representation of women in the service industry as frontline workers, we overrepresent that industry. So we were severely impacted. Um, and so those are many of the things that we've seen. Domestic violence also. The worst thing that can happen in domestic violence is for you to be isolated, to be there with your perpetrator, right? And that's, that's what, unfortunately, the pandemic restrictions did. Substance abuse, same thing, right? Um, you fall off the wagon, you need a network of support. Mental health spiked up, all these issues. But I think more so because we still also have, um, you know, we're dealing with one woman still being a lower wage earners. That's one, right? So that's the wage gap inequity. And then two, just the burden of caregiving. And so when those safety nets fall out, most impacted tend to be women. And then women were primarily highest at risk too and their households for COVID because we were frontline workers were overrepresented in those industries. When you ask a woman to go back to work, you may, I may want to go back to work, but without school, without daycare, without safe key, yeah. um, who's gonna take care of my six and 10 year old, right? I, they're not old enough for them to stay, you know, so they can stay alone. So there was this whole misperception that women didn't want to go back to work. Some women couldn't go back to work. Right? Yeah, you're saying that uh, because schools weren't back in? That, Correct. That the safety nets effect. were not there. And that yeah. burden, listen, those expectations were not there with gender equity, right? Um, men weren't expected. And that's where you see that those job losses didn't impact men as much. And then also industries that are stereotyped as being female, like caregiving industries, right? Where women are putting themselves in the frontline risk. They're, you know, those are industries too that suffered, right? With the pandemic. Um, and so it's, it's all those. So until we address, right, the, one, the burden of caregiving still primarily falls on women. And that's a huge barrier. That's a huge barrier. So until we address that, until those safety nets come back, women won't be able to re-enter the labor market. So while I can get a woman suited, right? I can get her on the interview. If my partners, it's my best interest to work with my partners, right? Who provide uh, childcare services, right? For them to activate or for schools, right? Those safety nets to come back, to advocate for women in government, right? So while I'm nonpartisan as a, as a nonprofit, it is in my best interest to advocate those barriers that stand in the way of a woman succeeding, of moving forward. In general, uh, communities of color, right? right. For some yeah. reason, their voice is not necessarily as loud and something tragic needs to happen. History has taught us that, right? Something tragic needs to happen in order for the issue to be addressed. Otherwise, we just, you know, shove it under the rug and be done with it. Um, we need to start looking at all those things. I think the pandemic also allowed us to look at what we were doing and looking at it a different way. We need to improve 
certain things. We need to look at the uh, job market, right? How do we address those issues? How do we make sure that a, that a woman can continue to support her family if she's a single parent without having to um, go back to, you know, an organization's nonprofit or be self-sufficient? It might be that the workplace might need to be a little more flexible, right? Correct. There were organizations that actually opened up daycares just to bring more people back because there's mm -hmm. yeah. this huge crisis across the country, employment, right? There's more jobs than there are people want to take the jobs. And yeah. a lot of people uh, blame it on the stimulus checks. You know, people have received enormous amount of money in stimulus checks, but that's not necessarily the only reason why people couldn't go back to work. I mean, people yeah. lost homes, people, right. multi you know, multi-generational families are living together. So where before maybe your mom and dad were living in their own apartment, in their own house during mm -hmm. the pandemic, that didn't happen. You brought them in, they got sick. And now you have mom, dad, uncle, kids, and... Those stressors were huge. How do, right. how do you How do you focus like that? And so I think, you know, I don't think any woman wants to rely on public assistance. I guarantee you this. I have, in all my years of work, both domestic and international, and even as a volunteer when I worked in the corporate sector, I've never seen someone want to stay. I think we all, as humans, we're more alike than we're different. We all want the same things for ourselves. We want to be able to stand on our own two feet. We want the best possible life, an opportunity for our children. I mean, most of us are very, very similar. I've traveled overseas. I haven't, regardless, even if I've sat across families that did not, we, we couldn't communicate totally different <laughs> languages. But what got us together, right, are the same, same things, right? Breaking bread together, mm -hmm. children, fat. we all want the same things. Everyone's going to go where that glass of water is. If you're thirsty, you want the goddamn glass of water, <laughs> right? And so it's, 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 we have to, you know, I think one of the things that make me so sad right now is that I think regardless of where you sit on the political fence, right? Because we, that's fine. You can belong to multiple parties. There are things that we should have a common agreement in, in social good and social benefit, right? Because there is an economic stimulus behind it, right? The sooner we get warm back in the labor force, people employed, right? Children, like uh, the, the beautiful child that Marie Jose referred to, right? To have options to have, that's a contributing member of society. We want contributing members of society. So it is, we're all vested really in making sure that we remove barriers so that everyone can exercise their, whether you believe in a God or whatever you believe, you know, their, their yeah. potential, their natural giving potential. People have the potential. Um, oftentimes it's just the opportunity that separates them, right? And let's just, let's tackle those barriers. So it's important not to leave anybody behind. And by, mm -hmm. I mean, what I mean by that is that we talk about women, children, men, right? Because yeah. very little sometimes we talk about the elder. Yeah. And so I was just talking to someone that runs a nonprofit here in Henderson, and she was talking about how her senior uh, group is struggling with rent mm, because yeah. the rent has gone up so much. Landlords want more money. And there are um, fixed incomes, right? Correct. Yep. They've already contributed, right? They've already paid their dues per se, and now they're finding themselves um, in an environment where they were, they were comfortable, right? They could live within their means, but the economy is take, kicking them out of their comfort. Yeah, but and if you're if you're seventy, you can't go out and get another job. You can't correct. go figure out how to make more money because you're just physically not able. Correct. At that point, and so well, maybe not so too. But there's also ageism. We are yeah, where yeah. we've gone up with it's with our women. Um, most of the women that we serve with used to be prior to the pandemic. Like uh, the demographic used to be 
always the 31 to 41 year old woman was our biggest demographic, right? We serve women who are age 16 and up. Anyone who identifies, that's key, identifies as female, could be a transgender woman, anyone who identifies as female that's 16 years of age and up, that's either unemployed, underemployed, or socioeconomically disadvantaged, right? So that, that sweet spot sort of in age demographic, the big one used to be 31 to 41. Now it averages 31 to 51. That's our big average. But then we're seeing also, because we serve all women, they, they, there's no age limit, right? So 16 and up, right? Um, and now we're seeing a big um, also growth in that 51 and plus category, right? Um, because some, not all, right? And, and we've seen it, right? There's been conversations that we've had in the US, right? Uh, folks' ability to retire, people are working longer. They may not have that ability to retire. Um, but it's very difficult whenever there's a crisis, right? Those are the, the employees that get aged out or pushed out of the market too quicker. And then for women, boy, we have a way earlier expiration <laughs> date. Let's just be honest. Thank God that I think it helps me, Latina looking short, um, that most, you know, that I get sometimes confused for a child if I were a cap, God forbid. You know, but it's been to my advantage because you know, if I go ahead and date myself, if I put all my experience, right, my 15 years worth of experience in the corporate sector, and then my other 15 years of experience in nonprofit plus, you know, and <clears throat> my earlier work, I mean, no one's going to hire me. They're going <laughs> to they're gonna look so at that timeline. You're 83 years old? <laughs> I'm about 83 years old. <laughs> that is correct. But I still feel vibrant. The and there are a lot of women <laughs> that we've talked to that don't want to retire. Not only they feel they still have something to contribute, maybe financially they can't retire too also remember kids are living right we have a whole situation with um you know college debt kids living at home you know we have um what used to be retiree age that are still now living with their kids um so there are challenges and that's another way that it affects women ageism across the board men and women but it's really harder for women because like i said we expire earlier in every industry there's um, also the social serv uh, social issue of grandparents not taking care of their grandchildren, yes. right? For whatever reason, the parents lose custody of the kids. We have an issue. Um, um, I mean, Clark County is one, but not it's not the only one in the states where we have a lot of kids in foster care, right? And um, the first goal Wait, is- are you, are you saying like if a parent is, a, I don't know, like a drug addict or something, then the state will take the kids away from that, that incapable parent? Correct. But you're saying- in different circumstances then the grandparents would then take care of those kids and that's not happening anymore no it is happening okay. but then you it stops the grandparent from ever retiring oh i see right yeah. okay so okay. you go back to the the reason why they still need to be self-sustainable in the individuals right. but no one thinks of them right because when you think of a parent and kids you think of someone between the ages of 20 and 40 right 45 yeah. 50 but then you're looking at grandmothers and grandfathers that are in their 60s, 70s that are taking, raising little children. Yeah, they got a round two. Yeah, and that's you a lot of work. someone like me. I mean, I had my son almost at 41, so He's 80, we right? are having, yeah, we are having kids older, right? Uh, right? Most of my friends, they are becoming empty nesters and I'm like nowhere near, God damn it, <laughs> you know? So that's also happening, right? No, but so there, there, there are a lot of factors, but I think also just as a society, I think you bring a really good point. We often forget about our elders and you know how critical and we have to have a society where we're more responsible and also see the value we're not a society that really respects aging um, we we tend to just erase um, 
we want to sort of do away with it. We, we discriminate against aging. We don't appreciate the wisdom that comes with aging um, and the value. And I think when we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, it should absolutely include age. I know that the teams that I've built in my experience, both corporate and, and, and nonprofit, are those teams that are truly diverse because you have diversity of thought. You have different levels of experience. A Gen X is very different um, than a baby boomer and so on. And those that are older, even seniors, um, many of my volunteers are senior and there there is a lot of value in that um, so I think it's it's just that it's it's that we have to um, not forget about uh, our elders and the value that they have to society and oftentimes you're absolutely right they're left behind um, and um, few people are looking at, um, at at that population and that's what sexy sometimes in philanthropy right what's 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 cute what's you know what shows and oh. um, well, so then we need these seniors to have good TikTok accounts. <laughs> yeah, we, some of them do. Have you seen yeah. some? I mean, they, I don't have a TikTok then account. Then they'll be so. popular, no, right? But listen, that, that's the ugly side of philanthropy. Then you bring a very good point. I think oftentimes, or even people, the way they give, right, it's really not to tackle issue or to solve a problem that significantly affects us as a community. It's almost like, eh, like a whim. Oh, that's cute. That looks good on me. You know, it's like an ego thing. I'll just go ahead and do that. How impactful was that? And that's what I mean by Maria Jose's job being so hard because you really have to look at metrics. And let me tell you, it's been a long-standing conversation. How do you truly measure poverty when there are multiple cross-cutting issues? It's a very, very hard thing to do. It's a very challenging thing to do. Um, so it is difficult. And oftentimes people just want the photo op or the cute thing, right? Um, or the thing of the moment. And, and human beings and communities are not things of the moment. Yeah, and philanthropy is not a one-time deal either, yes. right? It's a long-term commitment that you will be there to see it through. Because it's easy to write a check, one yeah. of those big checks that you want to take yeah, yeah, to the yeah. ATM. Those, those, right, check. Well, no, it's I want really to put that on my social media that I, <laughs> <laughs> that I involved with a big check. Ah, there you go. I just want to walk around with one of those big checks. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, if, especially if it clears the bank. Yeah. Uh, but it's easy to give out a check, right? What it's really hard is to build partnerships. It's to be able to sit on the other side of the table and say, okay, so we're going to fund this but help us understand what else we can do. Funding is one phase of giving. Then we have the volunteering. Norma's uh, organization focuses a lot on volunteering, right? Yeah. A lot of nonprofits don't have the budget to hire enormous staff. So volunteering becomes really, really important to them. The partnership, a good partnership should have both the cash, the in-kind and the volunteering. Mm -hmm. What I mean by in-kind is um, if we're doing, if we're clearing out our, our warehouses and yeah. we find, I don't know, carpet. Uh, this is a perfect example. We had, uh, there was a fire a few years back at the Salvation Army. Oh. Their men's shelter um, caught on fire and um, they called the office and said, by any chance, would you have carpet? Yeah. And um, carpet. And then so he explains, he's like, we really need to fix this and fix it right away because otherwise those yeah. men will not have a place to sleep. Turned around, called our warehouse and said, do we have any old carpet from the properties? And what I mean old, it's new. It's just, it would, got never, it, we just never used it because we right. either had too much or we changed patterns, whatever it is. Because Circus Circus already has park carpet. Yeah. We don't own it anymore, so. Oh, no, okay. That's, that's it. So I, you don't have to match the I don't have too much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to match the carpet. So if you had but some leftover Circus Circus carpet, then I you don't know that anybody has leftover Circus Circus carpet at this point, to tell you the truth. Um, 
<laughs> so you go back and the partnership is beyond just the check I, we you know we wrote as a company wait, once wait, upon you time. can't go there so casino carpets are typically like a wild crazy pattern right mm -hmm. so is there a wild crazy casino carpet in the salvation I'm army i'm sure there is <laughs> yes i never got to see it because COVID hit right after that so no one could go visit they have gotcha. a brand new executive director that i met a, a couple year a couple weeks ago couple months actually yeah. and he's great he's um, definitely looking forward to see that we crazy need, we carpet. need you to send us a picture of the carpet <laughs> i will so definitely send you like, a picture <laughs> of the carpet but that's just an example of the in-kind right, right. Yeah. they they could have gone out and bought carpet at home depot or yeah. one of those stores we had it we were able to they were able to come and get it use it right. put it to good use so there's the cash the in-kind and then the volunteer work people that go out and talk to the men um at their location and tell them about job opportunities and all the other stuff. Yeah. That's a true partnership. It's multi-level. It's not one mm -hmm. time deal. It's easy to give a check. Again, it's hard yeah. to be partners. And you also get to fire partners sometimes. <laughs> and just adding to that in-kind, that in-kind could also be intellectual property, right? Um, for example, you know, many organizations like Maria Jose or corporate businesses too help with giving their resources. You guys have a program where you help nonprofits, right? Um, learn, I think it's, it's at marketing. Uh, there was, oh, you guys do something. I forget what you invite. In procurement team maybe it's the procure i can't remember they, well you do with the points and that's another thing with in kind that i learned um in just in conversation we we had a printer that wasn't working for us mm -hmm. and you know this this is the thing listen nonprofits run mean and lean we use as much of our dollars at least the good ones right we wanted to go towards programming so you have no idea how creative we can get sometimes right <laughs> um and so our printer broke down and you know and you know we do a lot of our collateral also just in-house it's just a lot of things that you you just have to innovate and i learned that i can harness the power of a corporation a business like mgm because they obviously procure a, a huge amounts right so they can get great deals and they have this whole point program right with their and i was able to get a printer with points man it's like the heavens open up for me when you're a nonprofit, <laughs> you know i i never saw such a beautiful printer in my life <laughs> these things are just like huge because those are the days that really suck because we lack a lot of infrastructure sometimes those are the days that i really really struggle when everything is breaking down and then that's what keeps me up at night. Then that's a woman that I can help with my programs that I may not be able, she may not be able to put food on the table. So you may not think, what does a printer have to do with that? It allows me literally to function, right? Now, in my defense, I had no idea. We actually earned points every time we purchased toner uh. and things like that. And it was one of our departments. And this is part of the company and the people yeah. that work in there, right? I'm the person that it's the face of philanthropy right now, right? She actually looked at the points and said, hey, we're going to lose the points. Called me up and said, can we make donations and get uh, yeah. uh, nonprofits, maybe printers that they may, they may need. And so it just happened that she needed a printer <laughs> and I knew about it. And I'm like, OK, let's just use the points. Yeah. Right. So it takes it takes a village to raise a child. It takes yes. a, a village to take care of our community. And it's everyone. Right. Someone that I had no idea we were earning points. But now I do know, right? Is, is Norma calling you all the time now, checking on your points? How many points? <laughs> How many points? She, she, points? Only gets, she only gets a one-time deal. Broke. 
<laughs> it is a it's, it is a one it's, it's, time it's, it's amazing that there's so many ways that in, look a for-profit can look at all the ways they can harness the power right this is this yes. is a, a global organization right it's not just domestic right and you can harness that power of all those deals all this uh, all the ways that you impact and then look back at your um, nonprofit partners and see, hey, can we do, like she said, partnerships are hard, right? You're not just thinking one way. How can we best leverage what we have as a for-profit, right, organization to help and create social good? Right, and in so many ways, and those partnerships are so critical for nonprofits, right? Because if I just get as much as I love the dollars for a one-time grant, but then I can't use it in other ways. I mean, for us, a huge part of our model is in kind. I rely, like when you talk about the community goodness, like when things have happened, crisis. Listen, the pandemic, we had the best problem. We have our warehouse full with clothing donations. I mean, excess where I couldn't even spring clean. You know, are yeah. They, are they only like office clothes though? Uh, mostly, well, what we require is professional attire, but yeah. we did have to innovate. And so we also, because unfortunately the pandemic also drove homelessness up. We are yeah. up about mo the women that we serve 16% up, you know, in homelessness. Um, and so we're providing more um, what we call professional other items that we didn't before. So um, we, we, we need bras, bras, you know, undergarments have become really critical, you know, basic uh. needs, hygiene kits that we, we do it in a very dignified way. We put it in the purses. Sometimes we can do that with nonprofits. We've done it before. We'll do it with other corporations, not just MGM. SANS has provided us, uh, cause they have a strong hygiene program, um, with some of those kits that we include in a cross body bag. So it's all really very dignified. We have a very curated concierge approach oh, to our services. Awesome. So yeah. yeah, so a woman doesn't feel like she's being um, case managed by us. I think that that definitely is the secret sauce that I love in Dress for Success, yeah. the dignity in which it's provided. So when a woman comes in and I say that point of entry being the suit, she it's a cute boutique, right? Wouldn't you say? You, you've yeah. been it, you've seen it. Uh, you guys haven't. No, I'm not going to dress you guys, but no. maybe I can. I don't know. Yeah, but you don't, you don't want to give somebody, uh, hey, you need some deodorant. No, gonna, not at all. There's a toothbrush listen, girl, You do have right? to have those tough conversations though when you work on her side. I've done it. They, um, they're matched with a personal stylist, right? And that also is what break that creates that cycle's trust. I say we're a one-stop shop for self-esteem. Yeah. Um, and it's all that, that then you get into those deeper issues, those barriers that are preventing that woman. I, I can tell you this. Uh, I think I was about 13 or 14 and my grandma gave me a whole package of deodorants and toothpaste <laughs> and like all <laughs> hygiene products. I'm like, what is she trying to tell me? What's going on here? And it turned out that she was having fun coupon shopping and she had a ton of this stuff that she got like a dollar off double coupon. And I need to talk to your grandma. <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah. Can you exchange numbers here, please? Yeah. I don't think the coupons aren't as good as they used to be. <laughs> That's why there's 99 cent stores, right? Yeah, so there yeah. you go. Yeah. yeah. So back in the day, there used to be double coupons and you could get, she would, she would walk out of the store, with, you know, with like a 35 cent bill. <laughs> you know, like a, a cart full of stuff. <laughs> who, I think this, this who, who is your enemy? <laughs> we're, we're back. We're co coming in live. I guess injustice. I would say that injustice <laughs> is my biggest ignorance, enemy. greed, ignorance. Yeah. Lack of education too. just across the board for all of us. Right. We need opportunities in education, but it's also having faulty set of assumptions about communities of color. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten in my day some doozy, not only myself being a Latina doing philanthropy, um, but also assumptions about the population that I serve. And it's, it's really, um, you know, it, it, it really is heartbreaking, honestly. And as much as it angers you because 
that faulty thinking can have huge repercussions, especially at the very top leadership, especially with government. And um, um, I was going to uh, um, ask earlier about, I think this ties in. So diver as an enemy, diversity, even in the higher areas of the, your board of directors, um, I think during dinner, me and you, where you, you brought it up, you're saying that if the board of directors, if the diversity doesn't match the company goal or mission, there's also a breakdown because the board of directors have a certain fiscal responsibility and they're they're really the job of the board is to be the custodian of the mission so they're not to get into the weeds of operations but certainly the custodians so if they're the custodians of the mission and then there is a disconnect with the population that you're serving as a mission well you know how effective of a custodian are you going to be so i'm proud and happy to say that we've really um, worked hard with uh, dress for success and i would say even globally our global ceo is african-american um we have a lot of diversity obviously lots of women um, in the organization. I'm proud that I'm an executive uh, director of Dress for Success Southern Nevada as a Latina, right? I can, I can speak to the community. I don't, I don't, so for me, diversity is not a buzzword. It's a lived experience, right? I know what it's like, right? Uh, I have my own personal experience. Um, I am, I think I'm a little unique in that I, I try to tell people that I've lived in two worlds and, and and I think we just recently had that conversation where I don't even think most people know that, but you know, I've lived on both sides of the coin where I've experienced privilege and affluence and I'm a fair skinned Latina, so I, certainly privilege comes with being more fair skinned, um, but also just socioeconomically, right? My life in Ecuador, very different. Um, my parents moved here not looking for the American dream. It wasn't, uh, you know, an economic driver for them. My parents were separated. My mom was a very traditional woman and, and thought, sought to repair the relationship. Um, but we had no idea how my amazing dad was living the crazy vida loca here, bohemian. And, um, and really in some of the worst areas of New York City, my mom thought she was moving to like those pretty high risers you saw in a postcard. She had no <laughs> idea what she was getting herself into. And... I tell you, when we talk about things that I'm scared, you can put a snake around me, you can fill a room with spiders, nothing. You put me in a room with just one cockroach or a mice and I will freaking have a heart attack because it signified poverty when I moved into, you know, we talk about the ghettos, right? I'd never, I never knew what an inner city um, poor area was like and it was highly traumatic for me and my family to adjust um, to that. Um, and also what we do, I think, to ethnic communities here, right? As far as I was concerned, here I am, a kid from Ecuador, right? I had never heard of the word Hispanic, mm -hmm. you know? It's got the word panic on it. It can't possibly be good, <laughs> you know? What's a Hispanic? I remember I went, my parents sacrificed so much, they immediately did put us, because my mom thought that public schools here in the state was just going to fill with you crazy hippies. So she was, like, so concerned that... My, you know, her kids will be running around naked and on drugs, right? If they go to the public schools. Wow. Um, so, you know, that's... I was at the wrong school. <laughs> <laughs> that's what all she kept on thinking was like, oh my God, I think she had images of Woodstock. I don't know. Um, um, so we did end up going to, to a private school. You know, my parents um, worked so much. The typical immigrant story, right? Both had multiple jobs. Just amazing sacrifice so much for us. But what they did immediately at the school is they paired me with um, another kid that they thought, well, he's Hispanic, or she, you know, a, a, a couple of us kids that were um, Latino. They paired us all together, right? Yeah. Thinking that we were going to understand each other, and so you have a um, a Cuban and Ecuadorian that are having struggling to have a conversation because. One, we don't even speak the same. Like I had never heard a Cuban 
<laughs> the speed. Cubans got their own Spanish. Their own Spanish. The yeah. same thing I've learned. I always say I speak multiple languages. I speak Mexican. I speak Dominican. I speak Ecuadorian. <laughs> you know, it's colloquial. We're very different. In Latin America, we don't all even share the same language. Some countries in Latin America, English, that people don't think about, right? And that are in South America. Um, we have Portuguese. You know, we don't. So. I think all of a sudden to just lump people together. We see it in voting, right? We see how Latinos voted, right? Everyone every year touts the Latino vote. The Latino vote is going to be the watershed decision and Democrats are always clamoring the Latino vote, right? Look how Latinos vote in Miami versus how Latinos vote in New York, you know? Um, and are you, are and I think that's Cubanos part of the Cubanos are different than Puerto Ricanos? No, but not, you know who actually changed because they thought that the tide was going to change, Venezuelans. People forgot about Venezuelans, right? What were they escaping and leaving? And yeah. their experience with socialism, right? Mm -hmm. But they thought, sure enough, we've got more diversity. We've got a bunch of Latinos. We're going to win the Democrat. So it's, once again, not understanding the group, the lived experience. Correct. So for me, yes. being Latino or being Ecuadorian, it's not a buzzword. It's a lived experience. I don't have to hit a check mark or watch my words or, you know, or all these things that we do that we think it's PC that sometimes a lot of, um, sorry, um, progressives or liberals do, right? For me, it's my lived in experience. So it's not just like for you also, right? My family's blended, right? We're Asian, African-American, Latino, right? Um, but my kid just looks Puerto Rican, just in case. <laughs> no one's going to think he's, he's African-American, Equatoriano, <laughs> Thai. No one. No one would ever identify him as such. But, you know, I, I think that we have to also be sensitive to trust people and their lived experience, right? And... Um, and also just meet people where they're at, right? So the fact I think that I've navigated both of these worlds of, of privilege and being more affluent, right? And navigating then um, the experience of, of an immigrant, right? Um, living in, a, in low income communities. I can speak to it because it was my experience. Sure, you know, not in Nevada, but definitely in New York, you know? I know what it's like um, to also be judged or have this falseness of assumptions. I know what it's like to be that kid in the bus that I got to a point and, you know, my poor mother suffered so much because she was like, oh my gosh, where did you guys lose your ambition along the way? But also your world, poverty shrinks your world. Like when the kid mm. said, you know what, you know, my end goal is just to sit in this bus, go back and forth, you know, that that's it. I got to a point where even though I had a different frame of reference, right? My mom was an educator, right? You would think that I would have been different but when you are in living in poverty, and that's what I say, it's traumatic, right? When you have less than, your world shrinks and your self-esteem is highly impacted, right? When my friends are dying and I'm going to funerals, when I'm living in shootouts, when I'm exposed to so much social ills, when we live in culinary deserts, my mom who, you know, listen, she loves to cook and it's super healthy, but still, you, you, it's hard to Wait, find were, good food. Were you in a gang? I wasn't, you know, I was the weirdest kid. So here I am. <laughs> I was such a you strange kid. So picture this. They won't find you. Little Norma. I look, you know who I look like? Do you guys remember? I'm probably too old. Do you remember Tootsie? No. Do you guys know who Dusty Hoffman played Tootsie? You're, he, you're, he got dressed. He was dressed in drag. You're older than you look. So yeah, I'm way older. <laughs> anyway, Coke bottle glasses. You are 84 years old. But not, yeah, I am 84 years old. Not just black. I it's, love their face. <laughs> they have no idea. What? Who is? I, you guys, everyone's gonna Google Tootsie, okay? Dusty Hoffman. It's 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 a good movie. Watch it. But anyhow, that's how I look like as an eight-year-old. I look like this. Was that, was uh, that middle Mrs. Doubtfire in the 80s? Is that what it was? It was kind of a lot, a, a little younger, but that's what I look like as an eight-year-old, okay? okay. Um, 
But I was this kid because I had different upbringings that I related to the kids that were at risk of dropping out. One of my my best friends was the bully. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I found common bond with the bully. And then my other best friend was the straight A student um, because I think I've lived on, on different worlds, right? I know what it's like to have and not to have. Um, and so I think also too early on I had to wear leg braces and everybody thought I was handicapped. So, um, or that if the braces, you know, were removed that I would, you know, just fall or had polio. I, I had no wow, idea. Yeah. I would get like the craziest looks. I just have a but little bit how of old, a, How were you at that time? Cause for a kid, that's a very, I had to wear, yeah, oh, they were painful leg braces. I had to wear boots too, to go to sleep. So I have a little bit of a curvature in my spine Yeah, and then, then into it, there's, there's like an issue with the bridge on my foot. This explains yeah. why I'm so clumsy, Maria Jose. At least it's just I'm not regular. Please, everybody That's who knows story. me, just stick into Everybody it, okay? who knows me knows that I could just be perfectly this fine. Why, standing. This is why you're always kicking shit. It just happened yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> me and my you're hubby kicking my cat. <laughs> went out to eat, and I did an escapade mood for no apparent reason. There was nothing slippery on the floor. I wasn't drunk. I wish I was. I wish I could say blame it on the alcohol. No, I'm not that fun, boring. I just had a fish taco, people, and I literally almost do like an ice capade. Split my leg went one way. <laughs> it's just, it's just what I do. So I'm naturally very clumsy. I'll blame it on my small curvature in the spine and my lack of bridge on my feet. I don't know. So I used to wear orthopedic shoes um, and and these leg braces. So I also, I think I know what it's like also to feel because. When you're perceived as someone with a disability or a handicap, you are also erased. And lots of assumptions are made about who you are. So I think it was weird that I was this kid with like, I had almost like triangle hair, Coke bottle glasses, leg braces that got along with like the bad kids and the good kids. You know, it was, uh, it's quite, it was a, interesting. quite a picture you painted here. Oh my God, yeah. you have to see my great, my folks, my, my need pictures. A picture. I, yeah. I always say I had like, listen, my pictures were so bad all the way to high school. First of all, I will always photograph poorly. Um, but it was you so look, bad. You look I'll great on you. camera right now. We I don't can know. Tell. So I'll tell you. So my high school, right, when they handed out the yearbook, um, at one point I was a little bit of a rebel. I went to a private school all the way to sophomore year. And then I got tired, mostly all nuns. I love the nuns, um, but the, the nuns got the best of me and I, I rebelled nuns. a little bit. And I decided, I decided without my parents knowing, I had very traditional parents, right? And you guys know also being ethnic, being Asian, you know your parents, especially the, the expectations of a migrant parent, holy shit. So I decided on my own, I was gonna be smart that day because my principal, um, I didn't like the way she was talking to me. I don't know what it was. And so um, my ego got the best of me. And she said something like, you know, if you don't improve, you're going to go to summer school for math. And so I was like, well, you know what? I'm not going to summer school for math. And can you give me my records? I'm pulling myself out of school. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I was a big, big person. You know, wow, how, you know, wow, I really <laughs> exercised my adulthood here, right? <laughs> I walked out and then I was like, oh my God. They're gonna kill me. Oh my god, what am I gonna do? You know, and then of course the curse is in Spanish, like, oh Lord Jesus, let me out of the cage. So I had to go and my parents really gave me talk about tough love, the biggest lesson. I ended up going to one of the worst public schools. It was across from where we lived. And I was like, Mom, this, like there's been like City? gang fights there. Like you can't yes. send me there. My first year, guess where I spent it? In the library, hiding out. <laughs> I couldn't even eat lunch in the cafeteria. I was so scared. The, my first day in school, a kid ripped. We had all those old wooden desks that were on the yeah. floor. He ripped 
the desk. That was my first day. And then I saw what looked like tumbleweed until I realized it was two girls aggressively fighting with each other. Oh. Um, is this in the Bronx or where are you at? So this is in uh, Washington Heights, the upper west tip of Manhattan. Okay. Uh, I won't name the school. <laughs> no, no, but, no, that's uh, fine. So we, don't, we don't know New York. but Yeah, let's just say a couple of my one. One teacher, my math teacher, a gun got pulled on him. My gym teacher got arrested for um, inappropriate behavior. And this was my <laughs> senior year. You're doing of high gymnastics school. with some of those students? Um, <laughs> so this is just, I went, I went to a pretty rough school, but you know yeah. what? I had it, my parents made me live out my decision. I begged, I begged. I was like, take me across town, take me to one of the suburbs in New Jersey. I want to be good. I want to be with the good straight A kids. I changed my mind. And they, they teased me for a bit. My, actually, my dad did. He took yeah. a day off from work. And, you know, that that's a huge sacrifice, right? He had two jobs. And I remember him walking so upset, right? And walked me, took the bus, and then said, I'm not doing this because I would have to drive you. And and you are not bright enough to get on the bus by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that is terrible. Well, she does get lost. So. I get, well, hey, listen, right? I haven't changed much. There's no internal GPS with me. And, um, you know, he said, no, you're going to have to suffer the consequences. And my mom, who, you know, obviously worried about hippies, let me tell you, all that worry went out the window when she was like, yeah, you did this. You thought you were smart enough to pull yourself out of a private school that we sacrificed yeah. for. Well, you're going to live with the consequences of your decision and i graduated from this um unruly school but you know the irony too is that i met some of the best and this is where i have so much respect for public school i met some of the best teachers there i'll never forget one of my math teachers i mean he was i mean sorry my history teacher amazing i took classes i'm emt certified uh, please don't ever make me work as an emt because i probably <laughs> flunk and kill you but i mean all these amazing classes are teachers who you know, didn't get paid anything, who had to work. Our textbooks were from the 1960s. I mean, talk about an under-resourced school, right? You look at school budgets, you look at a bloated system, right? We still have an industrialized education system. Um, but those teachers that really like swam against, you know, the tide, really, really gave their hearts to their kids. Man, I'll never forget those teachers. And that's why I'm also a big believer in education. I'll never forget it. Um, there was a teacher against all odds who just pushed to put me in the debate club. And I was like, please, Jesus, I don't want to do this. I don't I was super shy. Yeah, And um, it was one of the best experiences because, you know, civic engagement has gone out the window. So I got to go to, I participated in the debate team. She put me in this writing program. Mind you, this is where poverty eventually gets in the way, right? I go to this fancy writing program with actually adults who want to be novelists because she really thought I was a good writer. I don't know why. My punctuation <laughs> and grammar were so off, but I was very creative. Um, <clears throat> so I go to this writing program and I just didn't feel like I belonged. I was the only ethnic kid there. I was the youngest, right? And this is why it's so important to model, to have people um, that look like you or to have enough uh, to see those, right? Um, you know, doing those things that you think you can't do or that that room is not for you. Um, and that's why I'm a big believer in that, in mentoring as well. And so I pulled myself out of the program and now I look back and I'm like, what an idiot, you know, how could I shortchange myself that way? But this is the way too that poverty impacts you, you know? Wait, um, so you, you left that writer program just because you felt like you didn't belong? I felt like a, I felt like an imposter. And I think also girls yeah. have a lot of that. I think as girls, we really... Um, um, and I would dare say women, right? When we look also st studies, Harvard um, did a huge study on also women in the leadership track. 
-hmm. And most of us, I think there was that big data, it's been probably oversighted, right? When a woman applies for a job, even though she's uh, 90% qualified or 80% qualified, she she won't apply, whereas a man is barely like 40% or 60% qualified. <laughs> He's like, I'm overqualified. Yeah. And, and they go in as applicants. And so, you know, we, we question ourselves. And then I think you add, you know, poverty or trauma to it. Um, it's not you, right? Because someone could say, here's this program, right? This opportunity was presented to you, but you know, you, you failed to make a good decision. But we also have to look at those, those brains, especially when you're young and you do have a flight and flee, um, you know, flight and no, flight, flight, fight or flight. Sorry, I should never say. I'm really bad with American colloquialisms. I should there put an end to it. Um, but we, we know yeah, what you mean. you're on survival mode. <laughs> you're on survival mode. We, we, me and my family, my sisters were known for butchering um, any American saying. I don't know why we insist on giving you American <laughs> sayings it's where we can participate. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get take, it wrong. Let's every take it the time. other way. What about Americans? Uh, America going with Latinx. What do you guys feel about that? The category. I Latinx. think we're going to agree on this one. What do you Ma feel, Maria? About Maria Jose, what kind of Mexican are you? I'm not a Mexican. I'm actually the <laughs> other side. It's interesting because I hear her um, her story. Right, two uh, Ecuadorian immigrants, two yeah. women, successful. I think uh, in I our think own so. right yes. right now. I think successful. I love my job. I have the best job at MGM, by the way, yeah. and I work with the most amazing group of do, women. Do you have Ecuadorian heritage? Is that what you? My saying? mother's Ecuadorian. My dad's Argentinian. I moved Excellent. to the states when I was fifteen. Yeah. So English is my second language. So I try to stay away from any saying that I can. <laughs> she's smarter than she's smarter than I am. <laughs> I insist that I'm gonna get them right. <laughs> we just had this conversation in the car with her husband. Like, so. Yeah, I just got it wrong again. He corrected me. He was like, "Can you please abandon them?" Well, I'll decide to it. Uh, and I decided to to embarrass keep, myself keep on, on a public the podcast. The Panama Canal was not built in a day. <laughs> yeah. But it it's uh, <laughs> no Rome. Rome's not Rome. built in a oh, day. Yeah, yeah, it's right. Rome, not right. the Panama Canal. Oh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> Panama hats are built in a day. They're Ecuadorian, by the way. And they're, they're not Panama, Panama hats, Panamans, but yeah. they're really Ecuadorian. Yeah, I know. Uh, but it's the same. It's you know, uh, it's two girls. My family comes. My mother's family comes from. Um, money as well, right? Well-educated. Mm -hmm. And you moved here. My parents didn't move for any other reason that my dad was a professional soccer player. Ah, excellent. Yeah. And retired by age 35 and said, hey, you know, we have family in the States, let's move. And he, they came, worked really hard mm. um, and uh, raised three children, right? And yeah. I remember being... Um, Did you come directly to Vegas or somewhere else? Directly to Vegas. This okay. is home. So when people tell me where I'm from, I'm, I'm from Las Vegas. I've spent most of my yeah. life here. Um, but a completely different experience, right? I have this most amazing, most amazing parents. I knew English was going to be my second language. I knew I was not going to eat nachos the entire <laughs> year because I couldn't say hamburger. So it's like... That's hard to say <laughs> when English is your second language. Wait, um, so you're saying when you went out, you could only order nachos? Yeah, because it's easy. See, nachos. Sounds really Latino, right? When, if you're trying to say hamburger and you're trying to all the R's, it's like, shoot. <laughs> hamburger. Write it. A J A. You know, you should just it, sound it out. Um, oh, yeah, that's true because our J's in our age, right? The American right? versus so the way like, okay, let, yeah. Let's make my life easier. <laughs> um, thing charcuterie was not an option. <laughs> oh my God, charcuterie! I still can't look. I can't say it. I can't, I can't say it either. It. So I can't say it. can I just say cold cuts? <laughs> Cheese no, and meat plate, then. please. I like those. Cheese plate, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's a, it's the same upbringing, right? I went to private uh, private school growing up, public school here. Yeah. Um, I never felt discriminated though. Oh, okay. um, and so it's 
I um, we went, we came from. I used to tell people, and people didn't believe me because once in school, someone asked me uh, because I was from Ecuador if I yeah. lived um, on top of the trees, and I said, "Okay, I'm not sure what that, this means. It's my second year here in the states. Maybe yeah. English. I've lost something in translation." Right. And I said, "Like Tarzan?" <laughs> he goes, "Yeah." I'm like, "No, okay." I had a nanny and a maid. <laughs> my underwear used to get pressed. I mean, it's like an Ecuadorian thing. I'm, I don't know, I don't what, know they what they do. I don't know what it is. You do. You, but you but they do. They do. And so, but iron your underwear. You, you don't have yeah. wrinkly drawers. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you. No wrinkly drawers. Uh, so, uh, we, I have stories That's to tell about that. How you take dress for success <laughs> to the next level? Yeah. Yes, I will. Thank you, press underwear. Maria Jose, I need to be funded so that we can iron. <laughs> <laughs> dress. I, need I don't know that I can dress push through <laughs> funding for what to <laughs> for someone to press underwear. Yeah, like that's not going to We finally struck gold in this conversation. <laughs> We've been digging. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what I saw. I didn't see discrimination. I never felt less. I knew English was going to be my second language, but I was determined not to be um, a statistic. Yeah. I also should say that um, I got pregnant very young. I had my son when I was 20. Oh, wow. So yeah. I was very close to become this Latina statistic. That's, that's of not Getsier. very young in the U.S., right? In the U.S., like high school is very young. Well, it's very young in the Latino traditional home. Okay. You have to tell your mom and your dad. Well, if and you're not else. married. You're yeah. not married. And I, oh, I didn't get married. married. Yeah. And uh, the best thing that ever happened to me was having my son. Now he's 24 and I'm like 25. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, but we have a couple of history majors in the, in the house here. <laughs> She's 25, I'm 85. <laughs> uh, part of it was what I didn't like that I saw was this ability for people um, to stand in front of a group and try to represent what we needed as Hispanics, as mm -hmm. Asians. My, my ESL class had a combination of Mexicans, Colombians, Ecuadorian, Koreans, uh, Taiwanese. Uh, uh, so are you going back to Lim's uh, Latinx question is, do you feel yeah, that- I don't. You don't, you don't feel that that's a, a useful no. categorization? No. I want to know who yeah. came up with the term White Latinx. people. I don't think it was, I don't think there's buy-in in the community. White motherfuckers. I will challenge you, listen Sorry. to, there's a very funny podcast by two yeah. Dominican women and they have a whole conversation and it's fantastic. It's one oh. of the best about Latinx. And I mean, it's with a lot of humor, right? Yeah. And you know, like how did that come out? Now, the thing do, that do I put a link do, in the, uh, yeah, in the, yeah. What's the name of it? I, I have to look it up. Listen, it, we'll I'm 85. Memory goes out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Just listen. You're lucky that I remember the word Dominican and Latinas. I mean, that's that's, um, but very dynamic younger woman, and um, they make a lot of uh, jokes about it because there isn't a community buy-in, and it's not just our generation because they're younger than than I am. Yeah. I think I think what's important that we all appreciate. I don't know how you feel, but. The only thing that I like about Latinx, uh, I, I can't even say Latinx. Latinx. <laughs> it doesn't even like it's so Latinx. terrible. I can't even. Yeah, say I that. can't even. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I, and it's so just not ingrained. I don't know. It's not something the way I've ever identified, or there's a buy-in with. Yeah. That I, I also don't know anyone that's my friend that's Latina or Latino that uses it. So um, you know, and no. younger cousins, my nieces. Yeah, don't use it. So knock it um, off, white people. <laughs> so I, I don't know. But I think what I do like the intention of the X is that we, which we struggle as a community, I think we can speak about it, right? Um, it's knowing the inclusion of diversity in sexuality, right? Or in how you identify non-binary. You know, 
we, we struggle with this in the Latino community. I didn't get any of that out of the Latinx. <laughs> so that's, it's the inclusion. That's the piece that we do miss as a culture, right? The other, right? Uh, um, are you saying Latino cultures tend to be very machismo? We, Is well, that what you're kind listen, of saying? I think no? there's something fascinating when they say machismo because I'll, yeah. I'll, I'm going to challenge you with this one, okay? So supposedly we are the sexist, right? Country that's behind, like the region, right? Yet, we've had... Uh, female presidents in the Latin American region. Yeah. I challenge you. Yeah. We did not have the issue when you had a female, right? Run, yeah. run. We didn't do that type of, uh, I'm going to butcher the word, misog misogyny? Miso yeah, misogyny. Misogyny yeah. that, you know, Hillary Clinton, where you were a fan or not. I mean, some of the things, I was shocked. I was shocked. I was shocked. It was shocking. So, Oh, yeah. the things that people said. That people, well, just the unfair process. I mean, it was such an yeah. undignified process. Whoever's running for office, you know, it was the sexism behind it, right? The, the sense of judgment, um, the things that, you know, that she was criticized. And we also see it in, in with race, with Obama too, whether you liked his presidency. Listen, he, I have a lot of issues. You know, listen, my, you know, as far as his immigration policy, I have a lot, a lot of issues. But I think the way he was judged in New York, we experienced it with David Dinkins, where he was told that he dressed too fancy because he wore suits. And he, at one point, got so pissed off. He said in, in a radio interview, he was like, would you be more comfortable if I am picking cotton wearing overalls in a farm? Would that, would that make you more comfortable? You know, and so the way I think we hold some people accountable, it's so clear, the bias, right? The outright, where you can even say it's a microaggression, right? It was a dirty, dirty race. Yeah. I think the things that happened, Listen, you, I don't have to be a Democrat, you know, to see that. So I do have a point of issue when people say, you know, Latin America and, and Latin American men and machismo. There is sexism. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think traditional cultures, we probably um, struggle with understanding gender fluidity more probably. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But then I go to places like Thailand that are considered to be traditional, maybe because it's Buddhist, right? There's, it's a philosophy different the way you see the world where I could be in a place in Thailand where people, you know, super traditional farmers and there was somebody that was non-gender, you know, self-identifying binary and no one, they may not know, but I think that's the Buddhist philosophy, right? You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to have a label. Let yeah. it just be. Well, so yeah, I, I did my high school years in Thailand, so I yeah. know a little bit about uh, Thai culture. It's, I think the way they see it is like, you know, whatever you want to be. You know, it's yeah. Just, yeah. It, there's no. Tony's mom doesn't understand. I mean, she still struggles with the term. You know, how do I identify? I mean, we had a funny dinner, like homosexual, like you know. Um, but she doesn't care. It's not a prolonged conversation. Wait, right? you had a gay dinner with your mom? <laughs> we had some gay friends over <laughs> oh, at okay. dinner. And the funniest thing is that they kept thinking the other person who was super hyper heterosexual was the gay person and the and the gay person they identified, you know, as super hyper heterosexual. So when the dinner was over, we're like, no, it was the older gentleman that was homosexual. Yeah. Not that it, it doesn't matter, right? But it didn't matter to them either. So like I said, maybe yeah. they're more, you know, she was more old school or traditional and not necessarily know what to give it a name. She didn't ponder on it or what it meant or could that person come over and have dinner with her. It just, it's like you said, let it be. So some things you may not understand or you haven't walked in that person's shoe. You may not have the answers, yeah. but you let yeah. it be. And I think with the traditional, other traditional cultures, I think in Latin America, where we struggle is that we want to find definition, right? Um, and we also that there's a very uh, big religious yeah. Uh, mentality yeah. right? right so um it's part of the culture it's part of the culture correct yeah. so you you're 
very Catholic or Christian at this point, but very Catholic. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like, well, they're um, still traditionally very and Catholic. So yeah. the gender fluidity doesn't really meet. It does not it, exist. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's harder for for them to transition. I don't think it has anything to do with machismo. It's, it's this belief of what's good and what's bad, what's a sin and what's not, right. yes. what's evil and what's good. So I think that's the big difference, right? Um, Does Ecuador uh, respond to the leadership of the Pope? The Pope is that so? Or is that a different? So, in other words, Ecuador is secular, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, its government is separated from uh, religion. But uh, a big percentage, and you're right, it's changing the demographic. It's primarily Christian, um, and within the Christian religions, Catholicism is one of the biggest um, uh, religion, I would say. But now, like uh, other Christian groups, like Pentecostals, have yep. have taken. There's also a huge influx America of increase. Muslims coming in. Muslims uh, are coming to Ecuador. Yeah, I, which was I was surprised last time I was there, and um, my Why cousin. Is this happening? I'm curious. Well, we've always oh. had a Lebanese migration. I mean, Turkish yeah, Lebanese always in in Ecuador. Some the of the wealthy families yeah. are Lebanese in Ecuador. I think okay. it's uh, what you see this this new world, right? So yeah. uh, we Global love migration. to see this this uh, world as segmented, but we're not. Right. I mean, look at us here. Yeah, um, she's got a super blended family. I have a, a, a family that um, I have cousins that live in in uh, Paris in Latin America, everywhere, right? Yeah. We're sitting here and we probably have different backgrounds. It's, this is the world that we live in today. The yeah. sooner we understand that we, instead of coming up with cute um, names to segment us, Latinx, <laughs> um, and we start talking about what we all have in common, yes. then yes. we will be a better place. Then the work that Norma does and the work that I try to do and uh, yeah. supporting. I don't care. I usually tell people we have a strong diversity department uh, at uh, MGM Resorts because it's needed. Unfortunately, in the 21st century in the US, we need to talk about it, right? Yeah. But from my point of view, I don't care if you're pink, purple, polka dot, you know, striped. Yeah. I don't care. If you need assistance, male, female, gender fluid. I don't care what you are. We should be able to work with each other to make progress, to grow. Yeah. And we're not there. So the work is always going to be needed. I don't want to look at someone and say, oh, I'm here with this Asian guy. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Right. Right. With there's this Asian singular point of view. No, I mean, listen, there's diversity of thought. Everyone has experience. And so you want that. But also the fact that if someone has the acumen, the potential, uh, I'm going to yeah. harness that potential. I'm not going to care. You're right. If they're polka dot, I don't, I don't care about that. And also um, different ideas. I like, I, I always tell this when, when I hire employees, I say, I want you to want my job. I want you to exceed me. You know, I'm a good leader, right? Yeah. If I hire just someone like me, it's, it's not going to make me an effective leader. I hire to my weaknesses too. I, I, I look to hire people. I surround myself with people that are smarter than me. You yeah. know, I, I want that even in my friendships. I want you to challenge me. One of the best teams that I had, I, I used to forgive me, Dan, and I'll give his name. But I <laughs> worked with this under the bus. <laughs> amazing copywriter. His name was Dan. And we used to say that Dan was the president of the Bureau of Crankiness. Very, very cranky, man. <laughs> very, very cranky. Yes. And in a lot of ways, Dan and I were very different um, as we were similar. But let me tell you, Dan made my work better. Because I knew that when I was coming in, right, I, I worked for an international um, organization <clears throat> and we had to fundraise millions and millions of dollars. And so when I would build my direct mail campaigns, just like a marketing campaign, right, we have a campaign, right. I'm not selling products and goods, I'm actually trying to um, get uh, funding 
or a crisis. You know, in this case, it was the Syrian crisis, a huge humanitarian crisis. Um, was this a different organization? Different organization. Okay, gotcha. yeah. And so um, he would al always challenge me. I thought I had the campaign pinned down and I would have my meeting with my, with my team, right? Um, my copywriter, the, the creative person, my direct mail uh, manager. And I said, okay, this is, this is the campaign that we're, we work at least three months out minimum on a campaign. And this is, this is what we're gonna tackle and this, these are the funds we're gonna uh, raise. It's gonna be for this group or for this, you know, uh, whether it was a mother and child clinic, a, a you know a, a children program, whatever it was, refugee assistance, migrant assistance, and, and this is the way we're going to communicate. It. And I think this is the angle that we should do. This is the, the hard strings where we're going to pull. There was always Dan. I would cross eyes and Dan, what is it? He looked like absolutely miserable <laughs> with the theme of the campaign, but he made me better. And it was a back and forth. Oftentimes, I I hope. Dan, I hope that I made him better um, because he caved in and we went with my campaign and it raised chunks of money. Um, but honestly, you, the Dan. years, no, no. And the oh, same no, thing with Dan, when sorry. I was wrong, there was one where he challenged me and I was very, very strong. I just felt like, no, no, that's the wrong way to go, Dan. And, you know, yeah. you know, and, and it took a bit. Um, and he was right. And it was one of yeah. the most successful appeals we've had. And so you want people to challenge you. You want diversity of thought. Um, and, you know, and like I said, on, on the outside, Dan and I look like polar opposites, right? If you're going to judge by physicality or, or even experiences where we lived, how we grew up. And in some ways, yes, we were similar. But that added to my team. If I hired someone like me, I, we would have together, that team, yeah. It's the most successful fundraising team that I've had because it was, it, it was, I had that diversity and I had diversity in a copywriter. And I think that that's important, right? Um, you know, um, yeah, you want different those strengths to challenge on your team. you. Absolutely. Yeah. You also have to be careful with the reverse discrimination, okay? Because yeah. we talk about diversity and we only want to see color or now gender, right? What, what are you, male, female, whatever it is, right? Yeah. But there's such thing as reverse discrimination. And um, I say this because in my world as a Latina immigrant trying to um, learn her way around and get a career and get an education, some of the best people in my life, my best mentors, the, the, the people that were invested in my growth were white males. Yeah. We're the people that op open doors. They, and so I, when I talk about diversity, I said, let's just, well, that's why I have the saying that I don't care if you're purple, pink, polka dot, I don't care. Yeah, we belong to the hair. same, exactly. We belong to the same ecosystem, right? So if we belong to the same ecosystem, we should be able to respect each other because the white male also comes with a, um, an idea, also comes with a vision and an experience. I remember walking into, I was the youngest um, director uh, running programs for the Culinary Academy here in Las Vegas. Um, at that time, I was 24, 25, and um, people would have conversations with me, executives over the phone, yeah. and they were totally fine. But when I would walk into a meeting with one of them, they will be disappointed because they saw this kid, right? Oh. Um, this young woman. Yeah. And um, I used to take offense to it, right? So it's like, what am I doing wrong? And I remember this amazing guy, uh, my mentor, who's no longer with us, George Cease was his name, um, the best person I've ever worked for. And yeah. um, my another gentleman that also um, I worked for, uh, one of our presidents for MGM, um, Felix Rappaport, both of them at different points in my career said, we have plenty of men in the boardroom. We have plenty of men sitting around giving their opinion. I don't need you to 
think like one. I need you to think like Maria Jose. Yeah. I need you to bring you in. That's because great. what if you want to act like a white man, that's my job, not yours. <laughs> and you need to get me out of my out of my job. And it's yeah. again, let's be careful with reverse discrimination because we need everyone in order to function and we need their experiences. And yeah. it is men like them that open doors for minorities, right? Cuz the struggle of minorities has been known since biblical times, right? And <laughs> yes. so... Uh, they're always picking on the Moses people. <laughs> <laughs> they're picking on someone uh, throughout history. But it is people that were, some of, uh, that were on top of the food chain at some point that saw something wrong, that decided to make a change and fix it. And we have to acknowledge that and respect that. Right. And so you can't go too far on one side or the other when we talk about diversity. We need to talk about respect. Respect for human life, period, for conditions, for um, access, for the ability to provide what everyone needs, food, shelter, education, mental health, medical health, regardless of whether you have two eyes, three eyes, or five feet. I don't care. Have and I would like to add that Dan was an older white gentleman. <laughs> I knew that. So, yes. <laughs> and here is this, you know, Ecuadorian woman. So that's what I mean. It's 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 diversity also in age. Um, I had lots of young, young kids, far younger than I, um, as I did, you know, older um, teammates. And I think that once again, you bring, and also it was his career path, different ex expertise. Um, one of the things that I love that was very non-traditional in his resume is that he was an avid um, into anthropology and archeology. span I mean, I really didn't need that as a copywriter, but that sure as hell made him more interesting, um, you know, when he wasn't being cranky. But, um, <laughs> you know, but that's what I mean. It's bringing, it's what you bring into the table, right? So we talked about diversity of age, of thought, but one thing that you touched upon, right? Like, I don't think it's so much reverse discrimination, which really breaks my heart. And I think, you know, we've had conversations, certainly I've had it with many of my girlfriends, is when <clears throat> there's so few of us, right, that we have to compete with each other. It happens with women, right? It happens with um, Latinos, with African Americans, with Asians, right? Or one group against the other, right? When we, we're pinned against each other, right? Because we think that, you know, if I push you out of the way, then I'm going to be that, you know, that person that gets in the room and, and we can't be the only ones in the room and, and we can't pin ourselves against each yeah, other. Yeah, I, I have to do that with lots of really good looking model men. Like oh, I, I don't want, I want to be the best looking dude. Yeah, so I got to yeah, sabotage I them. And I see it. Yeah, I see it. I see it. <laughs> Yeah, we feel the same yeah. way about, you know, five foot eight oh, women, right. you yeah, know. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, five yeah, foot sure, six. Yeah. We understand yeah. that. I don't get confused for a footstool, not at all. I think there is, there is gender discrimination still, right? So yeah. you can, and I had this conversation about a year and a half ago with someone. Um, if a woman comes into, if I come into a meeting and I argue, or not argue, but just yeah, I argue your point because it doesn't make any sense. Then they call me emotional. You know, she's got to be hormonal, emotional. If a man comes back into the same meeting, gives the same speech, yeah. argues with the same person, they give him, instead of calling him emotional or hormonal, he's got strong views. So we had a talk with a uh, psychologist, um, Renee. Yeah, yeah. She said almost word for word the same exact Absolutely. thing that you said. Yeah. It happens yeah. ongoingly. So, we experience that so much. And then there's the discrimination for women. Well, we don't necessarily want... I've heard men say, well, we don't really want to hire women because they're emotional. What is that supposed to mean? Right? It's not emotional. It's either we love what we do and uh, we all have opinions. Yeah. You, you both seem very professional. 
So I can't imagine. Listen, you have no idea. <laughs> we would be, I would be a millionaire all the times that I've been told to <laughs> smile, right? Or all the times that I've been told that, um, where I don't think a man um, to be a strong leader has to be told that I have to be nice, nice, nice. We women have to be nice, right? If we're assertive or we have a point of view or a vision, right? Because certainly in philanthropy, right? I have to be very tenacious. Um, that international organization that I work for, yeah. right? I took it from 22 million to 35 million at a time where there was highly lots of anti-immigration sentiment. And I'm yeah. fundraising for the Middle East. In a very difficult time. I had to deal with the Iraqi Syria crisis. Wow. I had to deal with the famine in Ethiopia. You know, and you know, you would think that, you know, you would understand that that requires strong leadership, but oftentimes it's not, right? It's a B word, or you're not assertive, or yeah, you're right, you're relegated to being emotional, right? Um, especially when you're dealing with a cause, when people's lives literally are at stake, when people are fleeing because they're gonna get killed, executed, wow. right? Um, you damn skippy, you know, I'm gonna move <laughs> with a sense of urgency, absolutely. But if it's, it's, if it's a woman, it's seen, different like our contributions are seen different if i fire someone you know it's completely you know different than if a man fires someone if i terminate someone if i make a business decision um i was at a conference room this was probably the most disheartening right and it was another female executive and we disagreed we had a disagreement and that's okay we can part ways as business partners and just disagree you know what my ceo said he said why don't you ladies go out and have a cup of coffee you know, because it's just, you know, like catfight. I think it's what people, I don't know. Or, you know, maybe you're all bitchy. Maybe you just need to have some tea and simmer on down, you know. And it's also, so, okay, we're going to see things through different perspectives as well. And that's that's okay. And like you I said. You want the jasmine tea. That's the. <laughs> the jasmine. That would I would have said lavender tea at that point. <laughs> if there's and then, that worse <laughs> yet, if you're Latina or you're a black woman, you know how aggressive you're seen. I've had these conversations. I had another woman, a colleague, and we were running. A, so I'm, I'm head of fundraising she is in charge of digital marketing right and we're trying to do this international women's campaign we're running and we each have a very strong point of view and, and we're trying to move the campaign along and the way we're sitting with a bunch of men in the room right the way that the campaign is being perceived or the way we're perceived right it's it's very very aggressive it's like you really have to um and i hate like that we had to go to a side sidebar and say, listen, our strategy is going to be such that we're going to make the men create, think that this is their idea, right? And sometimes you have to do that to make wins. And it's it, it sucks. You feel like so gross. Um, did but it work? It, it did. It did work. <laughs> I mean, they were so very pleased with themselves. Um, <clears throat> but I know. should clarify that the two of us are mothers of boys. Yeah. So as much as I love empowerment and I go back and I sound like a broken record, it is about it empowerment, empowerment of a community yeah. of people, regardless of we want to break the gender inequality. OK, we want to get to the you 21st century, treat people differently, first. regardless, well, but also boys have to see girls as less than. Right. So one of the things that we're very intentional with our son, with Alejandro. Right. And I've always said it. If we only talk about you, you hit on something really, really key. If we say that gender inequity is only a woman's issue, we're never going to solve it. Right? right. If I say that rape is a woman's issue or sexual violence is a woman's issue and we're never addressing the perpetrator which about 99.9% .9 it's men right um, I'm not saying that there isn't violence with women and yes certainly there have been cases but the majority right most uh, crimes um, of violence 
committed against women and children are male. Are, the perpetrators are male. And so if we say that that's a woman's issue and we're not addressing the men, we're not addressing the issue too. There's a lot of toxic masculinity, right? If I want, if I want girl power for my nieces, that means that my son, right, has to also, his paradigm has to shift, right? How I raise him. If I erase him as an entitled boy, right, that discredits girls or doesn't humanize girls, right? Or girls are only um, to flirt with. And if you like a girl, pull her hair, right? That's uh, boys are taught to get attention, right? So but does that work? His, yeah, it works. It's really, really cute. Um, love it. Um, <laughs> don't worry. All that this you, time, I could have been. <laughs> yeah. He could have been the most popular guy yeah. in school. Been the most, yeah. And if you got slapped back, it just meant she loved you right back. Yeah. Damn it. Um, <laughs> So, you know, my kid has had female best friends as he's had boy's best friend, right? That's huge. He sees his mom and his dad do everything in the household, um, you know, and there are things that Tony excels in that can be seen as domestic or that I excel in that can be seen as masculine space. But for him, that's not going to exist. Or things that I do well that can be seen traditionally, you know, that I do well, you know, um, Tony still can beat me with my roast chicken. Uh -huh. <laughs> Tony is in the studio. <laughs> he's, he's writing a long list right now of things that he does better. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's to Alejandro, it's one of the things that we teach him. And I love it because his grandfather, being an army man, taught him that. Um, was He was like, I'm going to teach you to be self-sufficient. Tony grew up that way. And I think that's why he's teaching Alejandro to be this way. You're not going to depend on anyone, whether it's a woman or a man. You're not going to go hungry because you're going to wait for your girlfriend to make you a sandwich. Or whatever. Or your mommy. Or you're yeah. going to learn how to dial, or, or you're going to have enough money to order food, you know? But you're going <laughs> to take care of yourself. And so we're raising. Um, we have to raise boys in the same way, right? We're never going to address gender equity, right? Or girls are not going to be in power if, if boys are also, um, you know, they're not part of the conversation. Men too. Uh, men are allies, right? The same thing with uh, uh, the you know, if you want to be an ally of a Latina, of, of uh, 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 the African-American community, the Asian community, well, you have to show up, right? And you have to give them the voice, the platform, right? And it's the same thing for women, you know? Men have to show up. We have to teach you how to be allies. You don't have to be one of to stand with, right? right. You just got to make the right choice of what to stand for and with. Yes. And uh, that's regardless of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, right. uh, what you believe. Because honestly, you know, I was born a Catholic. Now, if you believe in the good old shoe, God, knock yourself out. As long as you're respectful, as long as you uh, respect boundaries, as long as you respect my, my uh, belief system. I have a very Catholic grandmother, like a very, very, very <laughs> Catholic grandmother, right? Uh, 6 a.m. church days. Rosary beads. Um, yes, right? And... Even though she's very traditional, she was the first person to tell me, you don't have to get married just because you're pregnant. Mm. What you do have to do is raise a child um, in the Catholic faith, right? but okay. the best way possible. But you go back and say, you can break the rules to make the world a better place. Because otherwise, at age 20, they could have forced me to get married, right? Peer right. pressure and just end up divorced, what, three years later? She didn't. So the lessons in life, I think, and the thing we miss, and the reason why we're employed is because people don't accept people. You asked earlier, what was our biggest enemy? Yeah. Shame. Mm. Oh, shame, yeah. yeah. Shame is the huge. biggest enemy we have. Yeah. Right? Shame to be who you are. Yeah. Shame mm -hmm. to- To love who you love. 
yeah. to speak the language that yeah. you do. I mean, I have, I know there's really two amazing people and I'm a first generation immigrant. I didn't know why Mexican Americans of certain um, generation didn't speak the language. Right. Like, how can you grow up in a Mexican household with your grandmother being Mexican? You don't speak the language. Yeah. And when you learn the Chicano history, mm. the civil rights, you realize that as blacks were fighting for rights, so were Mexican Americans in the South, right? right? Mm -hmm. And they were shamed because they spoke a different language. Yeah. So their families turned around in, in an effort to protect children and decided that English was going to be the language. No shame in that. Their last name is still Hernandez. Right, yeah. it's still the same, but it's the lack of acceptance. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we continue to have social services uh, uh, available because there's shame. Shame comes with a, an array of other difficulties, right? Poverty, hunger, um, inequality, health, mental issues, because you're ashamed. You know, if, if a, you take human trafficking, right? July 30th is the day against, um, it's, the, it's the awareness day right. for um, anti-human trafficking efforts. And you go back and think, Women that have been, or women and men, because they assume it's just a women's mm -hmm. issue. It is not no. a women's issue. Yeah, it's right. a women and men, mm -hmm. boys and girls. They don't have to be adults. Mm -hmm. That's who experience yeah. that. Um, they yeah, feel. Or, but if somebody takes your sister, then correct. That's your problem too, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. The shame that comes with them. So it's harder for them to rebuild their lives because they feel shame. They feel that people won't see them the same way. And and you talk to them and they tell you this and then you you hear great stories of women and men that have um, pushed forward, right? Yeah. And their mission today is to protect others and you go back and say, there is no shame in what you lived. It was just necessary at the time. It, there is shame if you learn nothing from it and you don't pay it forward. Right. Yeah, I, I think shame, it's really, really powerful because shame can really hold us back and it can really break that human spirit. And I think you're right. I see well, that, shame that's in all poverty. The, uh, that's all the difference in getting dressed yeah. up for an interview, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's that's yeah that feeling less than, right? So when, when you get dressed up, when you deem yourself worthy, right? But also shame can really, really um, stop your growth. Right. Um, and like I said, shame comes in different ways, but certainly someone, um, I think that's why also we changed the word. And this is not just a buzzword, but when we say that, um, so that you're, you're a survivor, right? Um, versus a, a victim, right? And even though you have been victimized, it's taking your power back um, because that shame can eat away at you. Uh, that shame causes suicide, right? That shame causes depression. That shame causes self-loathing. Um, and yeah, shame can kill us as a society, right? That it doesn't allow us, whether it's, it's discrimination because of language, you know, who we love, um, you know, who we are and the experiences that we've survived, um, you know, that can really destroy us. So and, uh, I, and I like shame is I'm one so of those glad. things that are it's everywhere, right? If yeah. you're too f fat, it's a shameful thing. Right. You don't fit the, the mold of what who you need to be today. If you're too skinny, it's shameful, too, because then you right. need to gain some weight. If you're too tall, if you're too short, if you're dark, if you're this, if you're that shame is at the root of every social issue, right? Because if we actually owned up to our mistakes, yeah. our decisions, and we push forward and try to make the best out of it without shame saying, hey, I fell down, I scraped my knees, let me just 
dust them off and continue to move on. I'll have a scab for there for a few minutes. It'll remind me. But I'm not going to make the same mistake. Then the world will be a different place. Or shame of mental health as well. That's a huge one here. And, and we tackle that a lot in Nevada, right? We don't have enough providers if you get to the rurals, right? You've seen also depression in children, right? Now younger, higher suicide mm -hmm. rates in, in children. So yeah, shame if we don't address it, right? Um, and to see that uh, mental health is healthcare, right? In the same way that you wouldn't be ashamed if you broke your arm. The same thing with women who, uh, or men or children or boys who've been victims of violence, right? Um, the fact that they're survivors, right? But we're, we're ashamed, right? Someone runs you over, there shouldn't be shame in that you get run over by a car. Um, and it's the same thing, the healthcare, the mental health. But yeah, you know, that that is really powerful that you said because shame really prevents us from moving forward as, um, and it, it negates our humanity someone wants to get involved in helping <coughs> helping your organization or your program what's what's the best way on uh, I think separately on both of you um, how would someone get involved and contact you or what should they do to help out yeah so there's so many ways that you can get involved you can certainly volunteer you can volunteer to be a stylist you can volunteer to be a career coach you can volunteer to be a mentor um, we're trying to implement these things because of the pandemic and we're not trending in the right direction. We can start doing sisterhood check-ins. So for the women that come that receive our services, right, to check in on them, um, sometimes they just need that human contact. Um, that's really, really critical. So there's so many ways to activate, get involved. You can also make those in-kind donations. We like scrubs. A lot of people forget the trades as a profession and that can be very high-paying professions for women, right? And also we look at um, non-traditional um, industries. We just partner with Women in Security and we were able to take some of our clients um, where they were able to job shadow women and participate in the trade show. Um, there was an amazing talk by a famous race car driver. Um, and so there are industries that are non-traditional, right? Where maybe a woman needs construction book, boots or as an electrician. We don't get those clothes donated, like scrubs for, for frontline workers, um, uniforms. Um, someone can be, you know, uh, driving a tractor and that pays really well for a woman, right? There are many, many non-traditional career paths that we don't consider. There isn't a space that a woman doesn't belong in, um, you know? And so I would say, yeah, you can make those in-kind donations. We lack a lot of under garments. We, we are lacking um, um, also um, um, planners. We would love to have planners for our women when we in include cards. Of Why are you laughing at me? No, do you mean like a calendar planner? <laughs> That's or? exactly what I was going to ask. You oh. mean like the paper thing you or carry somebody no, to be a like planner. a No, a planner, a, 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 like a journaling planner, like 2009, and you put your calendar, but also your goals. They're called Thanks. planners. Oh, yeah. They're they go planners. I, I we have an Amazon wish list. I guess I, I just Don't assume everything goes my phone. English. So you so, need people to donate that? Is that what you're so saying? Yeah, so, you can, so you can volunteer. You can donate in-kind donations. You can make a monetary gift because that allows me to innovate my programming, right? Let's say we have to start restricting again, right? How am I going to get my programs and services? Or maybe I need to invest in programs that I currently don't have, right? The mission is never going to change, right? But the way that we help women based on the need that they're facing, on the challenges and the barriers we need to remove. So donations, you can become a member of our little black dress club, gentlemen too. I'm going to have to add oh. the bow tie club, the, you know, um, it and it starts $25 a month. I mean, those small gifts are really what keeps our doors open because that's unrestricted funding. So when my partners, right, also have to shutter because of the pandemic, right, or they're not getting revenue, right, or we can't do events, right, um, and the revenue is not coming in that way, that $25 monthly donation is really what sustains a lot of nonprofits. So there are many, many ways to give, get involved in kind, outright gifts, um, and volunteering. Is, is it weird if we donate a ton of bras every month? 
No, I need a retail. So if there's a retailer that's listening out to me, come on, Vanity Fair, where are you? Or all those uh, bra partners that I need, you know, plus size. When you talked about, you know, once again, the way we see ideal Large size. Large bras, yeah. Um, well, in clothing and everything. Another yeah. thing is that we are, we still, the fashion industry, right? When we look at clothing, oftentimes the really beautiful clothing is not plus size, right? Oh, yeah. And and also what we see as the average size of a woman. I mean, they our clients tell us when, I mean, sorry, our donors, when we say we need plus size, they'll say, oh, you need a size 13 or 14. And I'm like, no, that's the average size woman. So when I need a plus size, I'm saying 2XL, 3XL, 5XL, because we have this <coughs> weird mindset of what we think, right? Because we churn out what we see visually, what's fed to us on TV, right? This, this very stereotypical image of beauty and particularly for women, the way we're judged, right? How are we supposed to look? All those things that you said, the size that we're supposed to be. And that can really get in the way when you don't think about professional attire, when you can't find the right clothing, not only because you lack the funds or the dollars, but you can even find attire in your size or you go somewhere that a lot of our women have told us, we're made to feel shameful when we go there. We have to go to the special department, right? Um, you know, and, and it's it's awful. It makes them feel less than. And, and something as simple as that can really prevent a woman from saying, hey, I belong in that job. I, I, I can go and interview for that job. So when we dress a woman, we're not, I know it's gonna sound so corny we're not just dressing her on the inside we're dressing her on the outside and then addressing all those barriers that can get in the way um for her success in the yeah, way of her success great. yeah so um if you're an mgm resort employee i will encourage you to become a volunteer become a volunteer we have a wonderful volunteer program with rewards nonprofit. they can actually earn points and uh, make a donation at the end the company will make a donation to the charity of their choice once they log their hours so it's a way to give back it's a commitment again to continue to engage employees organizations like uh, norma three square catholic charities they're always looking for volunteers people that can help them provide the services yeah. or be the, the human touch that they need um, so if you're an employee, definitely join the forces of volunteering. If you're a person out there with a passion for something and you want to make an impact, don't forget to write that check because mm -hmm. that helps nonprofits. Grants are restricted dollars. Grants are meant to cover certain program aspects of their mission, but not everything. Just like the, um, the joke of the printer, right? Something as simple as a $200 or $300 printer yeah. was a luxury for a nonprofit, right? And they depend on the ability to print their flyers to communicate with their, with their um, I'm gonna call them customers because the people they serve are their customers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the $25 donation, I tell nonprofits, make sure that when you have volunteer opportunities, your volunteers are wowed by the mission and, what, and the work you do because that will turn into a donor forever. Um, I started making donations years ago to an organization and I have never stopped. I don't even question it. I know it's going right because I know they're doing really great work. If anything else, I've increased. So um, if you have a passion, just don't talk about it. Yeah. Do something about it, right? You can't change the world by sitting there and saying and looking at everything that's wrong and bringing shame to others. The way we, we change the world is by really sticking together and doing two things, volunteering and giving. And giving is a big part of how we survive. Yeah. yeah. 
And I would say too, when you think of um, making those donations, right? Don't discredit the small gifts, but also when you steward your dollars and you know, I also give to charities. I have those cross cutting issues or causes that I really care about. And you know, I pick them because I can, you know, I can give to all charities, right? I don't only just even contribute, you know, um, to my own organization. But I say pick five or pick three, right? Every give to multiple, but then choose those that you give to because you know if you're giving to 200 charities and just sending them a dollar each just think about the manpower that it takes to process that dollar so you know also be smart in your giving the cross-cutting issues the problems that you want to solve look at the impact that the charity is having you know um and align yourself and definitely giving of your time talents and resources all of it all of it matters um and then <clears throat> Two, solve local problems. I think even overseas, right? I'll tell you one thing. So the one of the times I traveled overseas, I traveled to Ethiopia and I was super excited. I had never been to Ethiopia. And I also, it was the organization that I work with. I, I supported a program, their children's program, right? So there were children that were in orphanages. And I was gonna have the opportunity to meet some of the children that I supported through that orphanage. Um, and then I, me being in the sector, I did the same stupid things that I tell people not to do, right? <laughs> I go out and I buy a bunch of like coloring books, just stupid shit, right? That I, I just, that my heart gets the best of me. And I don't know, I react Wait, impulsively. Why, why is it bad to give And I'll tell you why. Okay. And also why money means so much, why dollars matter so much to charities. So then I go there um, and I think, you know, like I think like in, you know, uh, just like an outsider. I don't even take into account the local community. And then when I arrived to Addis Ababa, one of the first things I saw was a woman in a market selling something similar that I had bought, right? Or not understanding even that she was selling rubber shoes that looked like had the imprint of sneakers because there's so many children that are barefoot, right? And I know this, I work in this region. I knew the issues, yeah. but I got swayed with my own emotions, right? Bought dollars instead of stimulating the local economy. What I should have gone is gone to this woman, right? Helped an, an enterprising woman, right? Selling goods, helped her family, and then given a gift to that child if I wanted to. But once again, it was it, I wasn't looking through uh, the local lenses. So that's what I mean. I'm not saying that you don't donate to international organizations, but then you take into account that local community, right? You stimulate the local economy, right? So don't just take things overseas or even when you do in-kind, the best way to do in-kind is to do it locally because what that also, what you pay in VAT taxes and returning that, you're taking away that possibility, right? I could have done so much more, man. I wanted to kick myself. I was like, what an imbecile, right? And here I am, I'm in the sector. I know better, but sometimes that's what I say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. When you have a good intention, whether it's to start a nonprofit that may not be needed. Divorce yourself from the ego. It's about making an impact. The same thing when you wanna help. Think about how can I best help? Which is the best way? And also trust charities that they know what they're doing, right? I should have gone to my programs person and said, hey, I'm traveling. What is it that the children need? Mm -hmm. What's the best way for me to, I could have invested in you know, our micro loan program. It was just really dumb. I was impulsive, right? I was moved. Sure, it was a good impulse, but it, it, was an in, it didn't have a lot of impact. It took away, if anything. Wait, so so did, did you look at those coloring books and see where they were printed? The coloring books where yeah. they were printed? I, yeah. I don't is that the that. idea that instead of supporting that local economy, you bought the books from Vietnam or something? 
No, no, it's just that I bought something here in the U.S. with dollars. Yeah. In other words, my dollar could have gone further. I could have given someone locally, but I'm visiting that country and I could have stimulated the local economy in the country Had you that I'm visiting. Yeah. Here, right? Gotcha. I didn't have that sensitivity. I was looking at it through the lens of a foreigner, yeah, yeah. right? So when we travel, just be conscious of where we're traveling. Try to really, you know, sort of shut up, let go of your own, you know, preconceived notions and then also respect and be open to the culture and seeing how you can best help it's a best in their own community but that that same uh, example can be uh, you know can be used here if you're you know if you give let's take for instance three square there's amazing food bank here they do some Mm -hmm. really great work I can go ahead and say I'm gonna buy $20 worth of groceries at Albertson Smith's name one of those places right or now I can get a little a, a bag with some decent stuff, you know, a few things here and there because twenty dollars doesn't go up, up right. you know, do, doesn't go far. Or I can give the money to the food bank, and they can add those twenty dollars to the other donations, and they buy bulk. So mm-hmm. the can of beans I bought for a dollar thirty nine, they're gonna get it for twenty thirty five cents. That's right. See, so my dollar would have gone a long way had I been strategic, just like Norma said. Yeah. She was overseas. I'm here locally. If I had just thought about the impact the nonprofit has, because they can buy bulk, I was buying at a grocery store. Gotcha. Right. So, and it's also to trust, right? If you're a donor, right, you may have your passion project, but maybe that's not really the solution that they need, right? And to trust a nonprofit that they are been doing this for a while, that they're talking, right, to the people that need, also to trust in the people that are receiving, right, uh, the funding, the support, right, to know that they know best what they need. And so I think that that sometimes happens in philanthropy. We don't trust the nonprofit, right? Let them be the good stewards, right? They know what their clients, their customer needs, right? We don't, I, I don't go around. I mean, sure, maybe I can send a message board to, you know, Apple, but I trust that the, they have all the engineers to develop the best products. The same thing with nonprofits. We have to trust. And that's why stringless, uh, you know, outright gifts are so significant to a nonprofit because when we do have a crisis and we're trying to reach more and, and do more public good and services, we'll know how to innovate and stretch those dollars. And we need those dollars to be flexible. You know, I didn't know that I was going to need so many scrubs as I need it now, right? For frontline workers. I couldn't have predicted the pandemic, but that's what those unrestricted dollars allow me to do. And also those that give, whether it's a funding partner or an individual donor, they trust that I know what's needed, right? Because I'm working directly on the ground with those who need the support. If there's young adults, if there's young adults that are interested in getting the line of, in the line of work that you two are doing, what uh, would you suggest for them to do, and what would you suggest for them avoid doing? I would say um, don't do drugs. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> please that, that that's one of them. Don't show up for the volunteer event with your heroin. <laughs> yeah. No, the, I think volunteer <laughs> really find the cause. Right, it's great to do good, but my work, my job comes with a lot of strategy and a lot of sometimes no's. Right, unfortunately, you have to. Um, have thick skin. You have to have a business head. You have to understand what a balance sheet looks like. What an, uh, you know, how to build a budget. It's not just do good. Because if you just want to do good, then go volunteer. But if you want to do the work that Norma and I do, then you need to be educated. You need to understand how to build a strategy, how to build a budget, how to build relationships, how to maintain, how to evaluate programs, how to turn around. I've had uh, um, organizations that ask me what I want them to do. Well. 
you really can't ask me what I want you want me to do. I mean, what yeah. do you do? Right? Because I can <laughs> say you can build a ship to go to the moon and take Jeff Bezos and everybody else, <laughs> or you can feed the homeless, which is what you were designed to do, right? Yeah. Um, you have to be able to do all those things, be diplomatic, understand how volunteering works, understanding that paying for overhead for a nonprofit doesn't mean that you're paying luxury because all you want to do is direct client services, but Norma needs to get paid. Right. She and has to, to have support the best people, right? Yeah. If we're going to workforce development, if I'm going to change that narrative, I have to have people who understand it, right? And who know how to deploy um, the programming. I have to have, you have to have a good ED and I'm not saying that, you know, it's it's any ED, right? Or or someone who also looks at nonprofits and says, where can I make a best impact? You have to have a really good sense of knowledge. You have to have a business plan. You know, you have to forecast, you have to budget, um, you have to build programs, you have to build partnerships. You need the business acumen. To, to nonprofit, once again, remove the that, that mindset of poverty. It's just a bunch of good people with good hearts. Absolutely. The kindest, nicest, most beautiful people I've met work in nonprofit. But also, I'm going to say, right, uh, the biggest mistakes that I've seen have come from nonprofits and me being in the nonprofit sector, you know, sometimes I've had to swim against, you know, the current. Because people uh, don't see them change. as nonprofit, as, right. as businesses. That's the biggest mistake people yeah. make. People on boards, too. There isn't a strategy. You have no idea. You would, I've been you know, in meetings with high level executives where I then, they approved a budget for a program and then I asked them for the rationale and they cannot give me the rationale. And it drives me insane. And I am, I'm, I'm in the nonprofit. I'm, I'm trying to raise <laughs> money for those programs, but I have to understand the rationale. And also they need to be driven from the grounds up. That's also another thing. There are nonprofits out there that are, are bloated, not in their overhead, in the fact that there's a disconnect, right? from those that they're providing the programs and services from, right? So you have to have boots on the ground. I would say that that's another thing to look at a nonprofit. They have, they must have boots on the ground. Um, we're about a half, half an hour uh, till the end. And that's, this is where I usually start the final questions. So this final um, questions. Dun, dun, dun. We, it's going to be about five questions and then each of you each one of them. What is uh, your favorite taco shop in Las Vegas? <laughs> no. Uh, Peaches tacos. Peaches. First question, what? He wrote the question, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> is this like a fire quick round? Yeah, it's like a, like, it's like I'm a concerned now that we're like no, up no, to no, hit no, something. No. <laughs> what? what? Uh, no, no pressure. I, I, I added fine. a question and I didn't realize I had, I forgot I added it. Uh, first question, what great daily habits do you have? What? I make sure I make time for a workout. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That, uh, it helps me release stress, but that's really important. The pandemic for some of us that were lucky enough to continue to have work created this very unbalanced life, right? Because I work from home. Yeah. So when this first hit, their need was so big and trying to help our employees through the employee emergency grant that my team and myself were working seven days a week, 10, 12 yeah. hour, door, uh, hour days. And you get to the point which I talk to my friend all the time, you have to find a balanced life. You can have a passion for what you do because I absolutely love. I am one of the few people that gets up in the morning and says that my job is an addiction, an addiction to be able to work and make an impact. And may people may not always agree with me. I may not be liked by everyone, <laughs> but I can honestly get up in the morning, look at myself in the mirror and go to bed at night and look at myself in the mirror and say, OK, I've accomplished something good. 
someone's life will be impacted whether I know them directly or not. Um, but because I was always connected, I started to get burned out. Yeah. And even when you love your job, if you don't have healthy balances between family, work, and yourself, um, and as a woman, we talk about it all the time, women have a hard time finding self-care time because yeah. then there's the obligation of someone calling you and telling you what's for dinner. I don't know what for dinner. Seriously. <laughs> whatever you want to cook. Yeah, whatever you want to bring, cook, whatever. <laughs> so my, my daily habit is that I need to make time for a quick workout, whether it's a walk with the dogs or just something. Yeah, it's a good one. So I'm on that learning curve. I'm not quite there. Just gonna I just work nonstop. I feel all eyes on me. Yeah. So, but what I'm learning is definitely to cultivate no. So I think a lot of us struggle with no, right? I'm going to give you my button. But definitely being a leader, um, one of the things that I learned that what makes me a strong leader is when I'm able to tackle, right, the big goal. So I might not get through everything on my list because my list, if I stop making lists, that's another thing. And my list is huge and I may not tackle all and then I overextend myself and I'm not effective. So I'm learning not only, well, I have been uh, saying no so that I can prioritize and say today, you know, these are the three main priorities that I am going to hit. And that's also not having to answer all of my emails. And sometimes, you know, it, you know, you want to get back to people, but I also don't want to apologize all the time for it or feel guilty because I think that's I'm being an effective leader by prioritizing. Now, I may prioritize something today. It doesn't mean that I discard the priority of it for tomorrow. So I think that's also what we constantly need to do as leaders is to, um, you know, we're not only thinking of what we're trying to achieve long term, but also to to check, right? Because we may have to adjust. You have to be able to pivot and adjust. And so maybe that priority will have to shift. Um, and I'm just learning to not feel guilty and making a habit out of not feeling guilty about um, the things that I have to prioritize. That means that I have to say no to some things. I think the no thing is uh, as big as a software engineer. When I have uh, upper management saying, hey, we want to add this module. And I, I think about it, I'm like, okay, that's, gonna, that's a, a three-week module for someone to program. We have a team of four people. Those four people are dedicated to something else. I find my strategy is to tell the upper management, like, okay, if you want this, here's the other list that we have. Which one right. do you want to cross off? Correct. And <laughs> I, I think that's where upper management hates me sometimes. But I, I, I make it very clear. You want this? There has to be some type of compromise. You don't just get to say you want this all the time. Um, that, that's where I find the best thing is to be transparent and give them a reason why yes. you have to tell people where the priorities are i just had someone ask me in hr how is my team doing you know how are they doing burnout and i said my team is doing fine because i strongly believe in balance nothing we do um no one dies on my watch right <laughs> it can wait until tomorrow we prioritize we work really hard um we say no sometimes we can't do this right now we are going to have to wait we don't have the resources and if someone pushes the same thing you said well here's the list of things of priorities we need to do which one do you want us uh want yeah. us to focus on but the health and well uh, well-being of my group my team as a leader is the most important thing i have those people look to me to make sure i make the right decisions for their everyday life right and that is my big responsibility so I have mastered the no, so I, I'll pass on my, my no button. <laughs> I got no problem with that. I'm saying the no, it's the guilt that comes with it sometimes. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that, that's yeah. every day that I try to cultivate. And it's about being effective because I am more building like a, 
GI Jane. To me, it's it's that. It's if ultimately that's a conversation I have to have with myself because I can be a bleeding heart, right? It's say, okay, where can you be the most effective? And so you you're not effective, right? Um, if you're also not only you're executing, right? You're executing on what you can execute on this big priority. So you have to say no to other things, but then also you won't be very effective if then you're carrying the weight of that no, right? Or feeling guilty or apologizing because you had to say no. You, you cannot apologize for effective leadership, right? Sometimes we have to make hard decisions. So um, you I'm can't apologize for being a human. And that's the big thing I no, think people say. True. People people see if you're an executive, all of a sudden you're not human. You don't have a family life. You can't hurt. No, it's one and the same. If today something happens to you that hurts you, you cannot be an effective leader today. You may not be able to make decisions. You're going to you're gonna have to rely on someone else to support you, right? That's the, str the strength of a team. Um, you're not alone just because you are the leader, you are the title, you are this doesn't mean that you're alone. And you have to acknowledge that work is important, but so is your family life. So is the, right. the life around you. The balance is in having everything and managing it correctly. Sometimes certain things take a bigger priority, right? So if you have a new parent, you might have to spend some more time in, with the family than you would um, otherwise. Um, or sometimes you have big projects, you know, if you're going You're a puppy that you got out of guilt. <laughs> I told her not to get one. I have two. It's going to let them borrow one. <laughs> but you, you sh I think it, the leadership is about making sure that you understand your balance and you understand that the person, it's a whole person you get when you work with someone. It's not the little pieces of it. It's not just the worker because I need to care about the person so that person can become a good worker. And we miss when we just say, well, you're just the worker. No, you're not ever the worker because it's important to find mm -hmm. the balance, not a bleeding heart. She is a bleeding heart. Yeah. And um, my biggest thing for her is find the balance because her heart's so big that she wants to do it all, all together, all at once. And then she's written with guilt. I wrote a book on guilt, so I just say yeah. yeah <laughs> so but let me tell you, also life and loss teaches you. So I think my biggest educator, because you can preach it and talk it, and I'll say it to other women, I'll t and she laughs at me because every time I'm saying, "No, no, I'm striking a new balance. I'm striking a new balance." <laughs> and I look at Tony, and he's like, yeah. no, <laughs> "What balance?" Not. Tony's like, "There's no balance. Just talk to my kid." <laughs> my kid is like, "I think I." They both told me so I was feeling very proud so I've never been an animal owner so now that I have the puppy I'm super excited because the puppy loves me the most gets the most excited when I come home <laughs> and then both Tony and my child have told me the only reason the puppy gets so excited is because you're a novelty <laughs> you really <laughs> show up so it's like ouch so yeah that was a reminder okay definitely balance clearly I'm out of balance but you know I think loss um, I lost my dad and I think that was a huge reminder right and there and I think that loss was so deeply painful because it came with a lot of regret and guilt and so I definitely don't want to live with regret and guilt but I think it's there's certain things you don't get to do a, a, you know a do-over you just don't have a do-over and so in this life you're right we don't get a do-over so um, striking that balance and then accepting all of our humanity and sometimes yeah we're not we're not gonna get it right but I think to um, live your life and it, listen when I look at the mission of what we do for our organization we don't say we're just helping women succeed in work right because that's not it's we're looking at her whole uh, holistically right the whole woman we say in work and life and so i got to live my mission too it's um you know it's me in work and life i just i tell young people that um i love my job but i work to live 
I want to enjoy the people around me. I want to enjoy great friends. I want to enjoy family. I want to enjoy my puppies. I want to enjoy travel, right? That doesn't make it my, my job second. It's just that I don't work. I don't live to work. Because the people that live to work sometimes miss the big component of what life is really about, oh. right? And the other best thing that someone told me is life is not a dress rehearsal. You only get it once. So what you do with it, you do it now. So you live by that and you, f you work really hard to find that balance because today's here, but tomorrow's not. What do you, what do you think or know of I cryptocurrency? I am going to pass that to my friend over here. Yes. <laughs> you can say you don't know. I have, yeah. What do no, you think I, of it? No, actually, what have you heard? Actually, that yeah. might be a good question. Yeah. Meaning it's it's more interesting to hear. <laughs> I sound like an idiot. So no, no, no. That's exactly. A lot of people haven't don't know enough about it. I don't know enough about it. I know it's very expensive. It's another form of investment. I'm not sure that. Um, based on my little, the little I know that I'm a proponent. I think um, I'm big on sustainability. And even though this will, this is digital. It's a, it's yeah. a digital coin. That's what it is, right? The amount of energy that it takes to maintain this digital coin in our yeah, world. See, you know some stuff. <laughs> but not enough to really talk about investment and all that. Other stuff. <laughs> um, I don't know that, uh, I don't think we need to add more pollutants, more, it's a, you know. Um, yeah, no, you're bringing up a great point. It takes a lot of processing power to, uh, to transact and maintain something like Bitcoin. Correct. Um, that's changing. There, there are new ways to run cryptocurrency where it won't take as many computers in the future. So that's very soon it will take a lot less. So, so that's I'm good. concerned. I was yes. more concerned on the sustainability uh, of what it does to our planet. I think we we've yeah. talked about community, right? Yeah. But we really haven't talked about environment the, and yeah. environmental justice, right? Because it mostly affects communities of color and poverty. Yeah. The, the big impact humans have in this world and the fact that we are not accountable for it. Right, yeah. we throw a piece of garbage on on the ground and we just walk away. No, 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 no. This actually kills animals. If we didn't have people taking care, conservationists taking care of our animals, um, your kids, because I already have mine, <laughs> will not <laughs> you guys see half half the species that we have today. Right, we have humankind tends to be destructive. Right. And yeah. so we're not necessarily sometimes thinking. We're thinking, oh, it's digital, so we don't see it. Therefore, it's good for the environment. No, it is actually not good for the environment. And that's why Elon Musk pulled out, right? He made this big sta statement that he was going to be all. And then one of the reasons he gave is, well, it's not real, so not really sustainable. I'm sure he gave others. I skipped yeah, that yeah. part of the conversation. So I'm not a big proponent. If it changes, maybe. And maybe I won't have a choice. Maybe that will be the way I transaction <laughs> moving forward. What, what you're looking for is, a, it's called proof of stake. So right now it's proof of work. So when it changes, it'll take a lot less resources 99 percent less yeah to, i'll take your word for to it to run that uh also you said it uh you started with it's expensive it's it's actually not expensive really yeah you don't have to buy a whole coin mm -hmm. you can buy ten dollars worth or a hundred dollars worth yeah yeah hmm. so it, it doesn't have to be expensive you know how uh norma talked about women and finance so mm -hmm. we belong to a group of latino women um Latino, uh, professional, professional women, women group, that yeah. a friend of ours created um, three years ago. And one of the things, hey, listen, I got, I, 
balance millions of dollars out of a bu- you know in yeah. a budget. But one of the things we struggle with sometimes is understanding that, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and that's another thing that women need to be better at understanding the finance. We have great women in finance. We just have to be able to explain it to the rest of us. So well, I think <laughs> I would say even sometimes um, sort of that immigrant story, right? Um, your parents tell you, or your mom tells you, save, 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 save. And you just think of saving, but you're not thinking of dividends. And I think, yes, absolutely women do not see themselves or think of themselves enough as investors. And yeah. we have to, because that's really, really a game changer. And I want that for our women, right? So we teach them basic, we try to have basic financial literacy programs through our partnerships. Um, and those in the finance sector, but I think it has to go way deeper than that. I think it's even in our education, right? We're not teaching kids really. I, I tell Alejandro all the time, Alejandro, do you want a dollar, right? And what are you gonna do with that dollar? You spend it, you end up with zero. Or you wanna put that dollar in your pocket, now you have a dollar in your pocket. Or do you wanna turn that dollar into $2, right? I mean, you know, most respond, I wanna turn it into $2. So I came in late into investment. I wish I would have learned it in school. And, you know, we talk about it. I can do a P&L and I can look at a budget, mm-hmm. but too. why can I invest, you know? Um, yeah. And so it's it's ridiculous, um, right? I can balance a checkbook, but that's, so I always prided myself, I guess, being traditional, you know, um, coming from a hardworking immigrant family that, you know, I have no debt. I didn't incur any debt. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I was good that way, but, you know, I really didn't have, I wasn't in a position really, um, aside from what you get in a traditional 401k or if you're working in the nonprofit sector, you know, 401, 3B, I wasn't making my money work for me. I wasn't paying myself. I wasn't growing. So I'm very excited about cryptocurrency. I was very excited early on, but then I also, you know, like most things, right? We develop a little bit of imposter syndrome. So I didn't jump in early. So Tony invested in early. And this is where I know the psychology of investing in women or why we don't really um, do it as much. Um, but now I'm happy to say that I've gained more sh- more in percentage in my investments than Tony. <laughs> Uh-oh. I need to be talking to Norma now. <laughs> but you know what? I have less invested. So he'll take more. I'm probably a little bit more risk adverse. But when I bet, I bet in what I, well, I don't bet. I know, right? It's just like everything, right? Investing is not a scary thing in products and goods and services, um, right? So I look at those um, organizations that I believe in, how they're run, I look at their leadership, you know, uh, I look at the reports, I mean, all that that you would normally do, right? And that's what I invest in. And cryptocurrency, why I'm excited about it is how we can democratize things, right? Being in the public sector, in the social goods sector, I'm exciting, excited to see what's going to happen. What is cryptocurrency going to mean for charity? Was it going to mean um, for the banking system that hasn't been necessarily um, so good? Um, what is it going to mean for healthcare as well? We haven't thought about it that way. Um, you know, um, we've looked at in times of crisis what the cell phone has done to communities in poverty. I'm excited to see what crypto is going to do. I believe in it. I think that with all things that are new, there's hesitation, there's not enough knowledge, there's fear that comes out of it, but also products, just like any product, right? Over time, it develops, right? You find a, a differ, different way to produce it. And I believe that they, right? I believe that also um, there are indicators too that we are finding a cheaper, more sustainable way um, to develop uh, digital currency. And so I, I believe in it, yeah, I'm excited about it. Awesome. One knew what she was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. What's the biggest problem for humans? What should they do to fix it? Too much shame. 
<laughs> themselves. Sometimes we can't get ourselves out of the, our own way. You're too many people? No, I just think sometimes we don't, um, because we don't like to see the, the ugly in us, we push it towards others. So um, I think the human rights is really complex, right? There's this huge level of human kindness because the mm -hmm. world revolves around human kindness, but we always focus on the negative, mm -hmm. right? So you turn the TV, you watch the news, and that's what makes ninety percent, right? Yes, ninety percent of the stuff is all the horror stories, mm -hmm. right? But the, there's not even a one percent of the stories that talks about um, the human kindness that happens, the uh, the care that people do for each other. Um, yeah. yeah, I think we're just sometimes our own worst enemy. Just be, just because we'd also somehow prefer to see all that negativity because otherwise the media will have to change, right? Yeah. Than the positive. So. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, but I would say poverty, right? We talked about that earlier and definitely shame and many things that are rooted in that. But let's say even if it's a disability, right? Like we talked about the little boy or even if it's... Um, trauma of violence, but if you don't have the right resources to seek out the health care, if you don't have, so I think it's income inequality, right? Those that those inequalities, um, the injustice that comes um, with poverty, the trauma, the shame that comes with poverty, all that. So I would say poverty is one thing that I would like to tackle, right? There's the childhood mortality rate that's related to poverty, right? Racism related to poverty, right? Yeah, creating systems of inequality. So. Um, she wants to change yeah. the world. See, yeah. she's a much better person than I am. <laughs> I, th I think but you're both. I should get out of my own people, way yeah. too. <laughs> I think I get in my way, right? Let the deal go. Get out of my way. <laughs> Clearly, we're sitting with two of the best people in the world. So <laughs> you're right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Next question's uh, a little bit more fun. What's your favorite food? Oh man, that's a hard one. You go. Okay, so I am half Ar uh, Argentinian, half Ecuadorian. Uh -huh. My Argentinian side is Italian, so I love Italian food. Okay, mm. now, however, you said uh, Italian, uh, uh, half Argentinian, half Ecuadorian. My dad's family is Italian descent. Oh, okay. So in Argentina, in Argentina, yeah. So I love a good pasta okay uh, my dad is an, an amazing barbecue so if you know anything about argentinians they are good with their meat ah. mm. oh, it's the best um, <laughs> you can be a vegetarian if you grow up in Argentina. oh no, no. <laughs> in Argentina. I'll be Argentina. let's say over. that uh at some point my brother decided they a vegetarian yeah. and that did not last in my family <laughs> needless to say i love my sister-in-law now she's awesome um <laughs> Wait, yeah. was the was the food too delicious for him to resist, or the family it's pressure? Cultural him it's cultural too. Okay, cultural, yeah. yeah, it's just it's hard. That, you know. Yeah. The salad is an addition too, but the main dish is always something <laughs> red. Gotcha. Um, in Ecuador, I love um, I love the soups. Yeah, el bolón. Yeah, uh, that's uh, things that are enough. So I have a combination of many things I like. Well, so Ecuador and Argentina are cuisines that we're not familiar with because I'd say in Vegas, there's no Ecuador restaurant, right? No, is there Ecuadorian restaurant? No. Yeah. no, not really. Argentinian, Argentinian, there is one on Spring Mountain. There's a couple of them that are good, one on Flamingo and one on Spring Mountain. Okay. Um, but their cu cuisines are not anywhere near. So I've known you for three years and you've never taken me to an Argentinian <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> I'm very <But> upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so uh, for the purpose of full disclosure, I usually don't eat meats or barbecue unless my dad's cooking 
that. So, mm, that makes sense. Um, it's the same thing with us. I am with very particular about the type of meat cuts. So if I go to a restaurant, you'll never see me order the filet mignon oh. or anything that looks like a red piece of meat. Wait, why are filet mignons bad? Um, no, it isn't. It's just the way I like it, the way my dad cooks it, right? So you okay. tend to be really particular about how it tastes oh. and how it's cooked and all that good stuff. My mom makes the a mean chimichurri, <laughs> the best chimichurri <laughs> on the planet. So you put that over a steak. So you guys Yummy. are both invited because I don't know if you know this, but Tony is a heck of a closet uh, karaoke guy. So oh, yeah. he has to come out he of the closet. Out on us. <laughs> <laughs> My dad is so impressed. He wants to come bring him over for dinner. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. what's your favorite meal? I mean, that's like, that's the worst question. So I love food. I love all <laughs> foods, everything. There's few, few things I'll say no to. Um, so that's like, just like the worst question that you can ask me. I love it all. But I guess if I would have to choose, it's probably just because cultural, right? Pies. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, I guess it would be Ecuadorian food. But then because I grew up in New York with a lot of Caribbeans and um, I consider myself partly Dominican too. I love Dominican. Those, you know, the foods that tend to be comfort food for you and now Thai has obviously with Tony's mom it's the same way that you feel about your dad like I really don't want to go to a Thai I went to, I used to go to Thai restaurants and used to think I used to have great Thai meals until yeah. I met Tony and you know and his mom and you know so I listen my favorite food is wherever I'm traveling that country's food I just love to eat I love to experience culture I love to experience food I'll even dive into things that I normally think I won't like but when someone serves you a plate of love you just better eat it up. So, <laughs> do you like chicken feet? I I am not um, a fan of chicken feet, but I've eaten it before. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, when my grandmother would make me soup, yeah. included I was the gonna say they feet. included I the chicken like, feet. Yeah, yeah, they did. I was like yum 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 yum, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'll eat it. There are things that I've surprised myself that um, I've actually eaten that I like that I normally thought like. I feel horrible saying this. Okay, so we had a stint. I, like I said, I grew up in New York, not a lot of you know, pets or animals, but we had Wait. a couple of traumatic experiences <laughs> with some pets. I know where this is pets. going, but it sounds like you so ate some pets. My, yeah, <laughs> well, my sister, um, her fiance gave her uh, a pet rabbit and we had Charlie oh. for a little bit. He was adorable, but we really couldn't manage the pet. We were ah. a very crazy okay. family. So Charlie became, let's just Dude. say a barking, almost like a barking dog. So. Uh, my sister's fiance took Charlie back. Then my first trip to Paris, obviously I want to eat my way because I'm a foodie through through Paris. Yeah. And I really struggled because I did have, of course, rabbit. And it was delightful and delicious. <laughs> and I realized that I love rabbit, but all I could think of I was, was Charlie. I was trying to see where she was going with this. I was just, there's a new... So I didn't eat Charlie, but it felt like I was eating Charlie. <laughs> Okay. There was a lot of guilt involved in eating that delicious rabbit. You know, the vegetarians that follow this podcast are really not going to appreciate any of us. No, and yeah. that's all. Another thing I did, I was a vegetarian for a year for humanitarian reasons, right? Just because I saw and visited slaughterhouses and became, I did it for humanitarian reasons and yeah. also just for the environment, right? Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable, right? But culturally, I was like, who am I kidding myself? You know, my father <laughs> would seduce me with steaks, you know, like and the food. And then also the way we make it in Latin America. And I just love food, right? I cannot travel to a culture and say, I'm not saying that all cultures obviously consume animal products, but and then say, no, I can't eat that. Right? It goes against my ethics or my morals or I want a sustainable well, world. I me, do, but I have this. limited my meat intake. That's what I try to do. Like at least do meatless Mondays. What if uh, they could grow rabbit meat in a brick 
in a lab. I'll be all about it. I've seen no. it actually. Uh, no, they can do. They take no, 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 no. I don't want sakes. anything that grows that's not organic. <laughs> for God's sakes! But it, it's, it is it's organic. Just, you no, can no, have no, no, a, a, a sustainable. There's no well, pesticides. No, no, no. What, no, I, what no. I meant is yeah. more what they're doing with cells, right? How yeah, they're exactly. they're growing. Um, I'm all about lab. technology and growing and all that. But that stuff, can be an a, a farm-fed, grass-fed, not genetically modified, right? It could be an animal, right? You can brick. No, well. I think it was kids. <laughs> but let's say they do, because I was watching, um, you know who you like? And he's very much about sustainability, uh, Bill Nye. And he had this one scientist, Bill and he Nye was talking. I love Bill Nye. Yeah. I'm a huge Bill Nye. I'm such a nerd um, fan. And so um, I don't understand it all because it went over my head. I'm not too smart, you know, that way. Um, but it, it was really taking this. And you can take a farm, you know, um, ethically raised animal, right? Yeah. Sustainable. Uh, you're not feeding all the genetified, uh, genetic modified corn or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But then also it's ethical because you're not slaughtering that animal. You can take some some of the cells and then you can, they, they started trying to see if they can uh, replicate the meats and it can just be as yummy and tasty because you're taking that DNA I'm from that animal. Let her taste it first. You know, <laughs> I, I told mean, you I, I love um, food. I went I'll to a like, place yeah, that they called uh, vegan but tacos listen. and no offense. They were the worst things I've, I've had ever. Since you asked what was my favorite taco restaurant, it's definitely, I'm not going to go to a vegan taco. But I've had vegan tacos. That's what I'm telling you. I'm a foodie. I love it all. I get as excited about vegetables as I can about steak. Okay, so, I love so Maria Jose is open to the idea, but we'll have to trick her into it. Yeah, we're going to have to trick <laughs> her. Just don't tell and me her father has to barbecue it. <laughs> yeah, my dad has to barbecue it. So I'm not having it. Final question. Uh, name two friends that should do this conversation. Call them out. Uh, two friends that should do this conversation with this subject. Yeah, yeah this who podcast. would you recommend to come on to the, who, but who the, would you it, like it to see? It doesn't have to be this subject, just in the podcast, right? Yeah. Oh, anything. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Who would you love to see have this conversation with Lim? Uh, Erika Aviles. I was thinking Erica too. Yeah. Erika Aviles. I think she should she's be there. So she's the founder of this uh, women's group that we belong to. That's so amazing. And she is really someone, what is hers? I always get it screwed. I'm telling you, I can't say sayings, but we lift as we... Erica, so we lift as we grow. We're coming we lift. So basically, she when you say female, she really means it. And she is someone that I, being a cynical New Yorker, when I moved here and when I joined the group, she'll literally text you and check you and say, what do you need? Yeah. And that's what this group is all about. You get it. And I was like, oh, my God, what do they mean? Are they serious? Or are they serial killers? You know, and she really, she really we are means not. it when she's checking in on you. And she really, it's amazing. And her generosity of, of heart, of mind, of whatever, she can connect you with someone, she will. And there's no, it's not transactional. She's not looking for anything in return. And she really believes in just the power of showing up for each other. She's created this group of women that started with a lunch and now it's over yeah. 300 women. Latino women. Um, oh, it's a buffet. And it's it's an amazing <laughs> experience of women now. that support each other. Because if you know anything about women, sometimes we're very competitive like with each said, other. So yeah. we're, when you're the and, minority, right? We're pinned against each other. This group has become this great way to connect. And it's, res it's resources you have. If yeah. someone needs something, you can reach out. Um, she's done such an amazing job. And I am just um, blessed to call her a friend, um, just right. like I call Norma. So. And that's where Maria Jose and I met. So trust me, there's been no nepotism here as far as, you know, philanthropy, you know, uh, a corporation <laughs> to a funder. You know, we knew each other from the and it's from this woman's group and it's also sharing, but it's also having the com hard conversations when I've been turned down for a grant. Right. It's happened. And I, I 
you know, um, sometimes you just don't hit the mark or understanding that that funder has other priorities and, and you're, there is an alignment and you have to know that. You have to do your research and do your do your work. So, um, but this women's professional network, I think just any, any network, um, when you talk about young talent wanting to break into philanthropy or into any industry, I would say, yeah, join a network, become a part of something yeah. with a group. Um, we need each other. We're social beings. Um, and I, I think the best networks are where you can address life issues as professional issues. I can get a recommendation on, you know, shit crap that I don't know anything about because I suck in healthcare. Like, oh my God, I need to get my hair done so I don't end up with a tree like I did when I was a kid, right? A triangle of a hair. Like, who do I go to? Because I have no expertise in that, you know? Um, or, you know, professional, right? I need business advice. I need, I need a sounding board. Or when we talk about what do we need, maybe we need more financial investment, right? Lessons for the group. And so it's about that. And I think that's really unique. It's organic and it's authentic and it's real and it's amazing. So talk to Erica Aviles. Yeah, she has a consulting firm that she started from scratch. So she's definitely someone that it's, uh, it's doing really well. I think um, the world of this person I'm about to mention, um, if you ever want to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's this young woman who um, I had the pleasure of working with uh, she doesn't work for MGM anymore. She works for Liberty Mutual. You know oh, I'm going. yes, Magali. Her name is Magali Munoz Mejorado, raised and born here in Las Vegas. No, not born. She's an immigrant. She's a first generation immigrant. Um, one of the smartest people I've had the pleasure of working with. She is um, in touch and in tune with the diversity world. When when she and that's what she does for Liberty uh, for Liberty Mutual, but she means it. Yeah. And so she lives it. Yeah, she does. And again, smarter than I am, kinder, <laughs> with a great voice. She could That's sing. what I was going to say. So you must have her sing. <laughs> it's amazing. Please, at anything, anything, just make request. Awesome. All right. I think that makes it this the end. Um, unless there's any. Oh, actually, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, you need oh, to plug oh. yourself. Uh, like, if, uh, do you think. And you must have Tony Murphy in this podcast. Yes. Tony. Talk about the film world. Oh. Um, plug yourself. How should uh, people either get in touch with you if they want to uh, get involved? Um, yeah. Follow your TikTok. Okay. This does not go in there. <laughs> <laughs> I usually can't plug myself because that means people will call me and ask me for funding. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, you know, all I could tell you is that uh, if you want to connect with me and have a conversation about philanthropy, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Maria Jose Gatti and I work for MGM Resorts. Happy to have a conversation. LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And I would say go to Dress for Success. Go to our website. So it's Dress, sorry, it's very lengthy. Spell it all <laughs> out. Dress for Success, Southern Nevada dot org. So go to Dress Wait, for Success. You can't be DFSNSN. So that's my email, but not the website. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's lengthy, but just look us up, follow us on social, um, you know, just key dress for success Southern Nevada, and um, you know, look us up and learn about us, get involved, activate in so many ways. You can activate as a volunteer, as a career coach. You can do a sisterhood check-in, just just an hour or less or fifteen minutes. You know, um, you can help with our donation intake processing. Um, you can give, like I said, of your time as a volunteer. You can donate, um, donate an item, donating a clothing that can serve a woman. We need more summer attire. Believe it or not, people donate off-season items. We don't have the space for it, <laughs> ladies. No winter clothes in the midst of a heat wave. It's not going to help a woman. Go 
an interview. You, you want my giant uh, fur coats? No, no fur coats. Okay, um, we need flat shoes, ballerina shoes. Those those kind of working. A lot of women are working from home. Um, also, non-traditional trade industries, non-skid shoes are are big. Um, so yeah, so you can make an in-kind donation, something that you can recycle and that woman can use. Uh, Clean, please, ladies. It has to be clean, ready to wear, summer attire. Um, yes, well, a little pressed, yeah. <laughs> and um, you can donate. No gift is too small. Honest to God, please, you know, give, support the charities and the causes that you care about. There's so much work that needs to be done. Our community needs us. Awesome. Uh, Maria, Jose, Norma, it was a s super pleasure. Thank you for spending three Thank hours with us. Thank you for having us. Excellent. <laughs>